The drive-through is GTM's monthly news episode and is sponsored in part by organizations like hpdejunkie.com, Hooked on Driving, AmericanMuscle.com, CollectorCarGuide.net, Project Motoring, Garage Style Magazine, and many others. If you are interested in becoming a sponsor of the drive-through, look no further than www.gtmotorsports.org. Click About and then Advertising. Thank you again to everyone that supports Grand Touring Motorsports, our podcast, Break Fix, and all the other services we provide. Welcome to the drive-through episode number 13. This is our monthly recap where we put together a menu of automotive, motorsport, and random car adjacent news. Now let's pull up to the window for some automotive news. You know, guys, I've been looking over August and I thought it was going to be an absolute bust. We just had nothing but piles of recalls and halted productions and chip shortages. And I didn't know what we were going to talk about this month, but the magic of the interwebs and of the automotive world itself never ceases. And you know what? We're going to kick off this month talking about Lamborghini. That's right. Lambos. There's all sorts of news of flutter this month about Lamborghini, our favorite tractor builder. <laughs> so what's in store there, Brad? They've announced that they're going to come up with a successor to the Aventador. It's going to be a V12 hybrid. Their second hybrid, not to be confused with the, the Cyan FKP and the Cyan Roadster. Is that, am I pronouncing that correctly? Cyan. Cyan, Cyan, whatever. Two cars that I had actually never heard of until this article. So the, the Aventador is a little long in the tooth, so they're replacing it. And of course, it's going to have hybrid technology. The hybrid technology that's in the Cyan or Cyan or Cyan, in the Cylon. Is that the is... XB or the TC? <laughs> This is the this is the the lunchbox, but apparently they said that it's not up to par with what they see for the future of hybrid technology. So you mean what Rimac is building? What we talked about yeah. last month? Whatever Audi and Porsche have uh, concocted, have, have have contracted for the Lamborghini to be doing. So the the technology that's going to be in the new car is not going to be the same technology that's in the the Cylon FK. <laughs> 47 Roadster touchdown, hike, hike, hike. Nice. Well, on the other side of that, you know, we did allude to in the past that Lamborghini was going to come up with a hybrid. And to your point, this is the second car that they're proposing with this hybrid technology. I'm really impressed that they're bringing back a V12. I mean, in today's age of let's go in the opposite direction and go quad turbo V6, uh, having a V12, I thought they were dead. I thought they were gone the way of the Dodo Bird. Kind of interested to see where this goes and why, and if it even really comes to fruition. Well, speaking of quad turbo V6, the Huracan successor is allegedly going to have a hybrid V6. I believe that's what I, I saw. Interesting. And that's not the Countach. No, that's completely separate from the Countach, which I believe is also utilizes a V12, but a small electric motor for, you know, powering the the sun visors or the, you know, the, the <laughs> lipstick lights or whatever you get in the, in the car. So since we brought it up, that's the biggest buzz in Lamborghini this month by far. Let's talk about the new Countach, you know, the one, the only epic music video car of all time does the new one really stack up with our hero our icon the david hasselhoff of automobiles <laughs> I, I hope no copyright lawyers are listening to this right now <laughs> 
I personally love, 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 and looking for a poster of it as we speak. Love the new Kudosh. I think it's amazing. As a rebadged Aventador, you're absolutely right. I have a few. The front is on point. Yes, I agree. Better than the original. I mean, it's okay. I don't like the back. The back reminds me of the Decepticons in the live action Transformers movies. Like the way their mechanical eyeballs are, it looks like a Decepticon staring at you from the back. (laughs) To your point, it took me a minute to figure out the rear end of that car. And actually it's very similar to a car we're going to talk about here in a little bit, which is the Bugatti Diva. I take a bunch of issues with the new Countach. First of all, like we talked about in the past, there's other manufacturers that have been very successful at taking classic designs and making them modern. Let's just go with Chrysler as an example. I think Lamborghini could have done a real salute, a real heritage car and taken the LP500 QV and just duplicated it and gone from there. Now, I get that that doesn't fit this 25-year-old Audi R8 chassis that they've been recycling now on every Lamborghini since the Volkswagen Audi Group bought Lamborghini. And so I get it. It's got to fit those dimensions. But when you look at the press photos of the original car, or even the LP500 next to the new one, it is ginormous. It just needed to put a wang on the back. A wang definitely would have helped. And it would need to be the wing from the uh, the LP500, you know, the big like airplane wing on the back. But that scoop on the side looks like a second window and it just, it irritates me. I don't like the fender cuts. Like we had talked about internally, it reminds me of the Jalpa. It doesn't really remind me of the Countach, the way they cut those angular fenders. There's definitely pieces and parts of other cars in the design. But at the end of the day, if you read some of the comments, even on Instagram and some of the other social media platforms, people are like, yeah, that's a great redo of the Aventador. Does it really speak to the Countach? And to your point, front on absolutely i'm just i struggle with everything else i can see your point that it should not be called the kuntash and if it was not called the kuntash would your perception be any different how old uh, is I think the, the aventador is... isn't the aventador more is newer way newer yeah yeah so yeah. i mean this isn't a, i mean this is this would be a, like an evolution of the aventador yeah you could say an evolution but it's not a redo i mean it doesn't yeah. Yes, they all have similar wedge body shapes, but I do think it harkens more to a Countach than the Aventador. I agree. But to Brad's point, we've seen it before. You know, somebody comes to the table with a new Mustang and you go, oh, it's an evolution. Yeah, but wouldn't you just say the Aventador is nothing but a Countach evolution? Or is it a Diablo evolution? Which is is a Countach evolution. Yeah, I mean, yes, they all go back. I mean, for a while there, they only made they only made one car at a time. That's that's very true. Like very different, many different variations of that car, but they made one vehicle at a time. Going back to your point about the name, the name carries a lot of weight. So certain cars, like let's say the Esprit, if suddenly Lotus brought that out and you and you're doing this whole thing, compare the old to the new. You know, is the sequel as good as the original, right? And that's kind of what we're we're talking about here. Performance-wise, visibility-wise, handling-wise, all the electronic goodies, the new Countach is going to be a thousand times better than the old one, hands down. We, we all know that from a performance perspective. I've heard that the old ones are terrible to drive. You can't see out of them. All that's that aside, the that's the point. They're awesome and they're bonkers and everything else. So maybe it'll grow on me when I see it in person. I like that it's white, just like some of the, you know, the older Countach. I mean, it... But they already, they already made a new Esprit in 2014, so that example is poor. 
Is that the Avora? I don't know. It says 2014 Lotus Esprit debut. Did that ever come to market though? I think it was just a concept card. I think it was never... a concept card too. Yeah. I think I think that evolved into the Evora. Yeah, I think so too. But I mean, there's other names. If I said Lancia Stratos, you know, I, I don't know. There's there's a bunch. I, I agree that there are some cars that are iconic. They're of such a level that you're killing yourself if you try to do a redo of them. Right. The Countach is one. The Corvette. I mean, they. I don't know. I, well, the Countach I mean, is definitely the, one of the, them. But I was trying to think, like a nine five nine for um, Porsche. You can never have another nine five nine. Porsche is weird because all their names are numbers. Or but you can never have an, another F forty. The F fifty was supposed to be an evolution of that. But I don't know. But, but I think you understand my point. There are some names that are so iconic. They're it almost be, sacred. We do it in the sports world all the time. You, you see somebody. A player that is so good, they're in the Hall of Fame, their number is retired. I feel like these names for automobiles should be retired. Exactly. The perfect example of bad naming convention is the Mustang Maki. <laughs> ah, oh, what about the Mitsubishi Eclipse SUV? SAV. Oh my God. Oh, please stop. But just to the point, talking about Lamborghini, say they introduce the Mura again. You're like, uh, I mean, again, that's another name that I think is, is hallowed and sacred in the halls of automotive history. Like you can't have another Mura unless it really is super close to the original one. Right. And I, I feel like that with the Countach. Now you could flip the coin the other way and let's talk about the Alfa Romeo 4C which is supposed to be the redo of the Alpha 33 Stradale. I see the hints and the homage, but they weren't as ballsy to say, well, we're just going to call it the 33 Stradale. They said, here's the 4C. It's a new model. It takes its influence from this vintage race car, but it's not really the same thing. It's a hard pill to swallow, but like I said, maybe when we see it in person, it'll do it justice. Maybe it looks different. Some cars don't photograph the best, although the Countach photographs pretty damn well. <laughs> but all I know is if somebody can help me find high res versions of some of these images so I can turn them into desktop wallpapers. That that would be no, I mean like legit posters for my wall behind me. I can find you guys some high res pictures of Fieros though. So we got that covered. All right. With Tonica Tane on the on the on the hood. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on a little bit, coming from completely out of left field is a Lamborghini that is now being referred to as the Jumpicon. That's not a Comic-Con? No, no. It's not a convention? No, no, the Jumpicon. No, oh, Jumpicon. So I was like, wait a minute, what is this all about? So I click on this and I go into it and I find out two kind of interesting things. One, there was a race that I'd never heard of before. And apparently it's been going on since 1968 in the deserts of Las Vegas. It's known as the Mint 400. The Mint used to be a casino hotel in Vegas and now it doesn't exist anymore. I don't know which hotel it's become these many years later, but this is touted as the longest running American off-road race I don't know how that plays in versus Pike's Peak, but still, you know, let's just say, let's follow that. You know, maybe we'll dig into that story a little bit more at a later date. And then comes to the table in conjunction with the 2021 running of the Mint 400 is this group called B is for Build. And you'll find them online, YouTube, et cetera. They're known for building all sorts of extreme cars. And they decided to build an off-road Lamborghini Huracan. And so when you look at this thing, you start to realize there's only a few pieces on it that are actually Lamborghini. 
it's very low to the ground. You know, it's got big wheels. It's got, you know, all this kind of stuff. And then, you know, it's mostly tube frame. It still has the scissor doors, which is okay. But then you realize it's powered by an LS. There's not a whole heck of a lot to it that seems to be Lamborghini. And it got me into this whole kind of philosophical debate known as Theseus's ship. If you replace the parts enough on the original platform, is it still really that original ship? And so it kind of made me think, you know, was this a wrecked Lamborghini that they basically stripped down, retaining those few couple of pieces still makes it a Lamborghini and maybe in its overall shape and design. You could kind of debate that for a while, but needless to say, it's you know a what makes of- it a Lamborghini? The VIN number. Uh, yeah, that's probably about that's it. That's probably the only thing that makes an Lamborghini. Performance-wise, it seems to perform well. At the time they recorded that video at the tail end of last year, they said they'd never had the car really off-road or above 40 miles an hour. So this was kind of their debut video. And we'll post it in the show notes so you can check it out yourself. They're kind of hitting the, the sand dunes and whatnot at a decent speed. And they learned some lessons. They had to go back and redesign some stuff, different skid plates, more ground clearance, stuff like that. So really curious to see how it fails in the race itself but this lamborghini jump a can batman tumbler thing it definitely got my attention for all of you know the four minutes that the video was <laughs> i don't know it's just people with way too much money and too much time on their hands more power to them for coming up with something unique and different but i hope they didn't take a brand new huracan and do this to it i hope they started with a flood car or a, a salvage title yeah, or exactly rather. exactly but, because it's a waste. I mean, like, like, like the guy who put the wagon wheels on the Hellcat. I just don't, I don't understand shit like that. It's, it's stupid. That being said, maybe a little teaser for our lost and found section there, Brad. What do you think? We found a warehouse find is an all bare metal body Lamborghini Moira. Moira? I don't know how to pronounce these words. Moira. 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 It's a Myra. It's a Lamborghini Myra. The Mura. Mura. I'm not Italian. I don't eat it. The Mura. <laughs> Spaghetti. There's a good name. They should have named it so the Lamborghini Countach. It could have been the Lamborghini Spaghetti. <laughs> the Lamborghini Linguini. <laughs> the Lamborghini Carbonara. Jamelli. <laughs> uh, Uh, The Lamborghini Miura P400S. It's pretty cool. This is kind of like some of those other unfinished vehicles. You know, like we've talked about before, what is a barn find anymore? Now we got warehouse finds and basement finds and (laughs) kitchen finds. They're coming out of all the woodworks now, uh, no pun intended, from last month's episode about the Lamborghini. But this one I just think is striking. Being a bare metal car and not being completely rusted, aluminum bodied, it's beautiful actually in its just kind of pure form. I am hoping that maybe whoever put the car together or ordered it that way or whatever, at least put a protective coating on it. And I think we'll talk about a car that's very similar in design here in a little bit. But I just think this is kind of cool. And if you haven't seen it, check it out. Again, these barn finds are popping up all over the place. I think it's really cool. It reminds me of the the body is kind of like the DeLorean a little bit. It's got that, that look. It's obviously a much better, much cooler car. I would totally drive this and blind the people, you know, going down the road in the sun. So as a teaser for our motorsport section later in this episode, there's also a bid. It's bid number six for the 2023 running of Le Mans, and that's by Lamborghini. The number of people lining up to run in LMDH, the replacement for LMP1, the new hybrid hypercar class, is going to feature the names Porsche, Ferrari, BMW, and now Lamborghini. And we also mentioned last month Peugeot slash Dodge by way of Stellantis. 
So that's pretty awesome. And 2023 is stacking up to be an incredible year for Le Mans. And we're going to talk more about Le Mans later in the episode. To close out our section on Lamborghini, our friends at Garage Riot, we were debating the Countach there as well. You know, it's kind of the hot news this month. And Donovan happened to post a commercial for Lamborghini, which I didn't know, know they did Lamborghini commercials. And I got to thank him for this. I got a great chuckle out of it. The tagline for the commercial reads, close to the road. We're going to post that in the show notes. You need to check it out for yourself. I think it's it's actually very well done. Very tongue in cheek. Good on you, Lamborghini. Do we know when this commercial came out? I want to make some guesses on who the arm belongs to. It's I definitely it's, a baller. Yes. I think it's a V10. So it's, it's a V10 era Lamborghini. So it's got to be within the last, oh, I don't know, 15 years, right? So who do you think it is in the car? Well, knowing that you said it's V10. It's Michael Strahan. No, I don't know. <laughs> no, from the song Gold Digger, he's the one that wins the Super Bowl and drives off in a Hyundai. Uh, that's right. That's right. I'll say Kobe. It might be. We don't know. I mean, cast your votes on who the mystery arm is in this particular video. But again, very, very clever, very cute. And uh, I, I very much enjoyed it. So thanks, Donovan, for posting that. And special congratulations to Donovan, who just picked up a Lamborghini Gallardo. So <laughs> it's a bit of a change from his background in BMWs and Porsches, etc. But if you want to learn more about his recent acquisition, check it out on garageriot.com. All the pictures are there. And with that bit of Lamborghini news, we round out our showcase this month. Since Lamborghini is, you know, cousin second removed of Volkswagen Audi Group, <laughs> I think we should probably transition to Volkswagen Audi news like we always do. And I mentioned it a little bit ago, the Bugatti Devo. The last Bugatti Devo, a model probably you didn't even know existed, 40 of which were built. The last one has been completed and delivered. That is the end of the production run for the Bugatti Devo. I think it's cool, but also very Lego-like. I mean, obviously you can see the inspiration in it from the Chiron and the Veyron, and even like I was talking about the rear end of the Countach and things like that. It's sad to hear about a car on its way out because I think this would really been really cool to catch in the beginning, like, you know, something shocking, but there are other cool and unnamed models from Bugatti coming. We've seen some articles floating around some spy pictures, et cetera. So I'm really excited to see what comes next. What do you guys think about this Devo now that you're probably hearing about it for the first time? I had no idea it existed. Is this the successor to the Chiron? It is a one-off model. So no, it is not necessarily in that line. But much like the Cyan and some of those cars, it runs in that kind of vein of here, we're going to do a small batch and then move on to something else. So I didn't realize Bugatti was doing 40 car runs. I mean, to tool up for new unique bodywork like this, granted, it's still like a hundred year old R8 chassis underneath. <laughs> it's still neat to see that they would put something out like this. They could have just called it a Veyron. But you could still buy the Veyron, the what super sport now it is, I think at the top of the top line 300 mile an hour monstrosity that they have. All right. So switching gears a little bit and talking about sort of related Porsche news, Singer that makes the most beautiful retro, what I call heritage cars out in California has pre-sold 75 of what they call their DLS model based on the Porsche 964 for a cool $2 million each. And an awkward pregnant pause there as you do the math. That's an influx of $150 million 
into the company. Not sure when they're going public, but uh, pay attention to that stock IPO for sure. And this quote from the Jalopnik article definitely summarizes how I felt about the consumption of 964s. And it reads, listen, I like an air-cooled rear engine driving experience as much as the next guy, but you can't tell me that this car drives $1,979,000 better than my shitty old 912E. Do you have any idea what I could do with $1.97 million? I could build a really freaking cool 911 and still have about $1.9 million left over. That being said, it's also the reason why, and we talked about this when Donovan guest starred on the show, the prices of 964s are going up because the 964, as we know, had the shortest production run of pretty much most 911s. It only lasted about four to five years, and there's not a ton of them out there, especially coupes. You know, there, there was a mix of variants in the 964 line, convertibles, there was a speedster, there was, you know, wide bodies, the, the 4S and things like that. So there's all these variations and singers just buying them up and turning them into these ducktail classics and short nose cars. And they're beautiful. They're handcrafted. Absolutely amazing. They perform really, really well, but it's driven the price of stock 964s through the roof. I've also read that once Singer can't get any more 964s, they're going to move on to 993s and they actually have already done so. So that means the price of 993s is also going to skyrocket, right? They want to stay with the air-cooled 911s, the best of the best. I'm really, really curious to see where the whole Singer line goes because people are going to board the cars that they have to try to hold out. You know, what's Singer going to come to the table with and offer you 2 million bucks for your 964 and then turn around and sell it for four? I mean, good on them. Good on the person who still has their 964 that they can sell for $2 million. 964 turbos will be there soon enough. Don't worry about it. I still think it's a ridiculous amount of money for a car. Yeah, and you're dealing with a car from the 90s. They overlap with the 993, five maximum six year run, the low production numbers, because that was the first year of the 3.6, you know, stuff like that. You're dealing with a 30 year old car. So it's already vintage, and then you're making it even more vintage, right? Going to late 60s, early 70s look of the RSs and the ducktails and stuff like that. I mean, again, the singers are gorgeous hands down. Maybe they'll start doing something else. Like where's my retro 308 built on top of a Modena 360 or a Ferrari F430? Why don't we do something different than a retro 911? I feel like they're kind of played out, at least in my opinion. I think we forgot to just start this one with rich people doing rich people things. Ah, you're probably <laughs> right. Definitely out of my price range. I think we started the entire episode with rich people doing rich people things with the V12 hybrid Lamborghini and the Countach. Definitely not in the market for that. Yeah. <laughs> so what else is going on in the VAG world there, Tanya? So Audi is unveiling that I guess they're going to join the Dakar series. We're going back what? to rally? What? We're going back what? to rally? Huh? Come again? YouTube video out there where they're showcasing their brand new purpose-built design Dakar rally vehicle. And it's an e-tron. And it looks sick. It's reminiscent of other rally cars of the Dakar series. So that's exciting to see them returning to the world of rally. And hopefully they actually go back to the other rally world as well, WRC. So they're calling this the RSQ. And I thought what was really kind of cute about the video is there's this like double asterisk that says this vehicle not based on a production car. So I was like, it's a purpose built Dakar rally raid vehicle, right? And so 
what I thought was also interesting, unlike the VW submissions of years past, which were loosely based on the Touareg or, or the Amarok or some of the other vehicles that they have in their lineup, especially overseas, this is a purpose-built desert rally car. It is super cool. The big question that came to mind, and I rewatched the video a couple times in slow motion, and I thought I saw a shot of the crankcase and I'm thinking it's not a full e-tron, but a hybrid, but I can't confirm that. And there's not enough information because the biggest question that came to mind, if this is a legitimate e-tron, where are they recharging this thing on the Dakar? Because the Dakar rally is what, 1,000, 1,500 miles? It's something ridiculous. I mean, I guess they're going to charge it with their diesel generators. Oops. <laughs> Those are some pretty long rally stage weights that you have to go through. So you got to charge that thing up. I'm curious to see where it is and what the specs are. If they are going full electric, I'm shocked. And I want to see how that pans out. I don't want to, I don't want to say good, bad, or indifferent, but I just want to see how it all works out for them. So best of luck on that. But design wise, super cool. Very futuristic. It reminds me of the Via Cross. No, it does not. <laughs> Speaking of futuristic, so they're at it again, Audi. So they've unveiled a concept car of the future, if you will. It's a very sleek looking car. It's got a lot of futuristic bits on the outside and definitely on the inside. I mean, this thing looks kind of like a Batmobile or should be in a James Bond movie or some villains driving this thing around. I mean, it, it looks pretty neat. But the interesting thing about it, it's an autonomous concept car for the future, but it's also a transformer. Wait, wait, what, what, what? Transformers. <laughs> There's more than meets the eye here, but I'm don't. When they say transformer, it's not going to suddenly stand up on its hind wheels and start talking to you. It actually can elongate the wheelbase by almost 10 inches. So basically you can have a sport mode in a shorter wheelbase or elongate it 250 millimeters to a more touring wheelbase, if you will. And since it's autonomous, they've created it such that the steering wheel is retractable and the pedals are retractable. So basically they'll disappear into the dashboard and the under dash so that you have more comfort room. It's a concept car. It's kind of the vision of where the future could be going once true autonomous vehicles, if they ever actually come to fruition this could be the future of what more and more vehicles look like okay so this car has melted my brain i have looked at this video on repeat for way too long and here's my takeaway there's a lot of stuff it's really expensive that can break <laughs> well, okay well i was gonna save that part but first thing that came to mind batman the animated series second thing that came to mind the defender from viper because it looks like a Viper from the side in profile. Right? Yeah, I was just about to say, they they went, they're, they're going all the way to the future of 1993. 100 Dude, it looks like a Viper from the side. I mean, like a Gen 1, Gen 2 Viper. It's scary how close it looks. Third, what does 250 millimeters, which comes out to about 10 inches, buy me on a two-seater that I can lay down and go to sleep while it's driving me? Because I don't understand. It's not like suddenly uh, I don't think it's, your back seats pop up out of this thing. I don't think it's for your comfort. I think it's for the driving experience. So if you want to- people like you me. Wanna, if you want to pull the steering wheel back out in the pedals and go hoon around a bit, I guess you shorten the wheelbase and then you have a more sporty feel. It's a car that fits everybody. I guess if you're seven feet tall, like our big man in a little car episode, you don't have a problem. You stretch the vehicle like Gordon wanted to do with that Viper, right? That we had talked about. But in this case, I get it. It's cool because there's no drivetrain. And so on these electric vehicles where they can put the power plants at the end of the car and all that kind of stuff, it makes sense that they can grow and shrink the interior, especially at the pedal box and the 
the way I look at this. I just, the question that continually comes to my mind is why? Why do I need this in my life? Well, it's a concept car. So why do any manufacturer do the things they do with concept cars? They're they're proving they have the technology and the capability to do something that's crazy. So in my Mark IV Volkswagen GTI, when the sunroof broke and it wouldn't retract or whatever, there was a crank. And you had to manually crank it. <laughs> oh so when man! You're, when you're stuck in 10 inch mode, you get you out. Need to pull, you need to pull out a crank. Yes. Stick yeah. it in the side and crank it back in yeah. to the driver mode. Cue the no, music. No, you Cue just the jack in the box music. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. You just do like those those cars that the kids have, and you you back them up until it winds up, you know, and then you can like let it go. It's the same thing. Just back up the car into a wall until it crushes itself. It's perfect. Or so I'm a baller and I've got my Audi, whatever this car is called, and I've got my you know supermodel girlfriend with me or whatever, and I can't get it to shrink back in. So I go stand at the front. I ask her to stand at the back and we just kind of smush it back together. Is that uh-huh, how that works? Uh-huh, yeah. Uh-huh. She, she walks away from you. She calls Uber. Gets she goes over to the guy in the, in the Chiron. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, first of all, to do all this mechanism, I'm sure it takes a ton of power and there's a lot of servos. And like you said, it's expensive to replace some of the brakes. But the stats on this car are not great. 310 miles of range. They're claiming equivalent 553 foot-pounds of torque. But that's a lot of stuff going on. And it's still not more complicated or more expensive to repair than a Volkswagen Touareg or Phaeton. Uh, you're probably right about that. So there, there is an advantage to these cars. So we'll, we'll move on because this thing just, you'll see it in the show notes. It will just, it bends spoons. That's what it does. That, that's what it does for me. It's like the matrix. You know, normally our next manufacturer that we talk about on every drive through episode is our friends over at Stellantis, right? The fourth largest auto manufacturer on the planet. Now home to Chrysler and Peugeot and Fiat and Ferrari and all sorts of wonderful names that are in the Stellantis portfolio. So normally this spot is reserved for news of 2 million horsepower Dodges, right? But sadly, last month we talked about how there was the last hurrah for the Challenger and the Charger. But since we know that most of these Chrysler products that fill this space that we love talking about are really built on, as Brad would put, 100-year-old Mercedes-Benz chassis, we thought it was appropriate to bring in a substitute with a name in the automotive world that we haven't heard in a while. And that name is Brabus. Yes, folks, Brabus is back and they won't be outdone. They were usurped by AMG many, many years ago. You know, there were other names out in the field, you know, doing really cool things as well. But Brabus was the name you went to for high horsepower Mercedes. So they've come to the table with all things an 800 horsepower SUV built on top of the GLE. It's wicked cool. It looks like any Brabus you've ever seen, you know, it's sort of outlandish, but also subdued at the same time. It's got all these really cool styling cues internally. They've redone the interior, given it massive horsepower. You know, the typical all Brabus black, it comes in one color as long as you want it in black type of deal. It sounds amazing. I mean, I have to hand it to the Mercedes engineers. Their V8s are some of the best sounding V8s on the planet next to the Corvette C7R and some other vehicles that are out there. There's just nothing like a Mercedes 
68. So good on Brabus for coming back. I thought it was really cute to have it parked next to a Brabus Smart 4.2, which I didn't even know was still a thing. So when you watch the video by Shmi150, it's kind of an interesting review of the vehicle. It is new, the newest entry from Brabus. Curious to see where that goes. And interestingly enough, the name Brabus came up on our What Should I Buy 90s episode. So we were debating whether that was a good pick and a good buy and kind of revisit that old moniker if you're looking to invest into a 90s car. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, definitely check it out. Wait, I have something. Oh, you do? So the other little bit of Stellantis news we have. So last month, we talked about the guy who was building the Lamborghini in his basement, and there was some wood involved, (laughs) among other things, and eventually he had to bust the basement wall down to get the car out. But nonetheless, wood strikes again. And this time, though, it is an entire car made out of wood. No. Yes. No. Oh, yes. It is a scaled down version of a Ferrari GTO 250. So it's not a one-to-one replica, but it's not the size of a go-kart either. So a gentleman in Vietnam who is a woodworker and he is very talented. He wanted to give his son a Ferrari. So he built him one out of wood and it has a working electric drivetrain. So it is drivable completely on the road. Not that it's probably street legal, but it does function and does run and it's and he handcrafted it, carved it out of wood. Some of the proportions are off. That's okay. Like the windshield is ridiculous. I love the wooden windshield wipers. That does make me laugh. I mean, those little details, the door handle is exceptionally entertaining. Looks like something you'd see on a bathroom vanity, but I got to give you props on this. The woodworking is exquisite. The car does look really, really cool. I'm not sure what else to say. He's a woodworker. He had 70 days extra of time on his hands and he built one. That is something else. That's for sure. I feel like this could have been done with a Fiero and 200 bucks. (laughs) (laughs) There's a kid out there. (laughs) I don't know if they have the Fiero out in Vietnam. Can we send them out there? Because we don't want them. Yes, please. Like we do with like the campaign t-shirts and the Super Bowl loser shirts we send to third world countries. Let's just send all the Fieros out to those third world countries. Oh, man. You know, and that's probably a great segue into talking about domestic news. We separate Stellantis because they're now this global conglomerate with all these different brands underneath. And so the domestics are now really... Ford and GM, Toyota aside, and all the other ones that we know are built here in the States, but big, bad American companies, Ford and GM, Ford has put out a press release saying they're going to move to build to order. And I'm like, cool. Volvo talked about doing that. BMW's talked about doing that. Porsche does that now, quote unquote, on their website. Doesn't Mini do that? Aren't all Minis built to order? Supposedly. These are supposed to be completely bespoke. Like you're supposed to actually get what you want. And here's where I found... The lies, the lies. As I'm reading the article, it just stands out to me. And to quote, ordering the exact vehicle, color, trim level, accessories, everything you want is how Europeans have been buying their cars for ages. Lies, lies, and more lies. I've never been able to custom order a European car the way I want it, right? I want triple black or I want purple interior. Or I, it's always... You can do it in their little configurator, especially today online. And then at the end, it goes, find closest available compromise. And it's always black over tan or black over gray. If you want red, you can only get these wheels. It's always some stupid catch 22 that you can't actually.
actually get what you want because they're not building cars to order. They build them ahead of time. And by the way, I've tried more than once going to the dealership and saying, I'd like the wheels off of that car, you know, while I'm there already making a compromise and they won't do that either. Lies. Was their comment, because I didn't read this, was their comment in America, you can buy your European cars built to order or in Europe, Europeans can buy. Yeah, I think that's more the truth because what I read was the actual quote and they're like, oh, Europeans have been doing this forever. And I'm like, no, 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 not here. Not here at least. No. So I like the concept, right? Some people are like, well, this is dumb and blah, blah, blah. I just want to down to the dealership lot and pick what I want to pick. But there are those of us in the community that would prefer to buy a bespoke vehicle. And I'm not saying it needs to be ridiculous, but at least give me the combinations that you offer. If I want a black interior on a black car with black wheels, you know, or whatever, I should be able to get it, not get to the end and it just be this giant tease. And I'm left with, nope, there's 13 white ones and a blue one. So this is what you get. I'm like, what? No. I thought we were kind of moving toward that new hotness of, you know, made to order and a la carte and all this stuff. So I would think people would want to be able to have more choices in their interior, hopefully with some limitations that we can't be getting hot pink Pepto-Bismol color choices, right? Like here's a palette, choose from it. You can have I want to be this. able to choose heritage interiors. So I want the Ricardo Montalban Corinthian leather in burgundy. I want everything burgundy in my car. (laughs) As long as they can do it fast enough, I think people would be on board with being able to say like, oh, I really want white leather interior in my... Oh, like the old Volkswagen Cabrios had and stuff like that. But I want a tan dashboard, red carpeting in a forest green exterior. I don't know. Somebody probably wants that combination. (laughs) Stop talking about the color choices that were in my UR Quattro from the factory. (laughs) what were they they had green pile carpet i don't understand what they were thinking like what is this black seats and a brown dashboard like what is wrong with you all those cars were kind of slightly bespoke they were all (laughs) not by choice though no like random combinations of (laughs) of interior took me the longest time before i realized that my black interior was actually a really dark chocolate brown (laughs) so bad but on the other hand you know what you can order but you get all the options and no choices is a three hundred thousand dollar for GT40 replica from South Africa. Well, you know what? If I'm spending $300,000, you darn tootin' better be giving me exactly what I want. So under license from Golf to put the Golf livery on the car and Superformance, who has made the Superformance Cobras in the past, which were Ford approved replicas of the 427 Cobra, they are now constructing exact replicas of the 1968-1969 Le Mans winning GT40s down to every single nut and bolt. So if you want a turnkey late 60s race car, get yourself a Superformance GT40 for a cool 300 grand. Would you buy this or a new Kutash? The price points will probably be the same. So in all honesty, I'm going to have to lean towards the Kutash only because 1960s replica means 1960s handling. It's not an homage or anything like that. It's a direct copy. And it even has 
the ability to be homologated into like vintage racing and stuff like that. That's how accurate this copy is. And so what that means is awkward, you know, geometry is going to have ancient handling characteristics. I've read that the old GT40s kind of were awkward. They were a handful to drive and stuff like that. I, I don't want that. I mean, if I'm going to spend 300 grand, I want it to be fast and I want it to be predictable. Does it have like 18 gears to shift? Uh, only in Ford versus Ferrari. So Ford, we talked about them last month and about how people are taking delivery of their new full-size Broncos and they're not happy because the tops are trash. Well, Ford has come back and said that they're going to replace each and every one of those tops for free under recall. I thought they were having issues with sound quality and, and fit and finish and stuff like that. That's not the case. They're actually having problems with peeling paint and discoloration and things of that nature. Ford is going to replace each and every one of them. So if you've got one of these fancy new Broncos, and you've got a hard top, take it on down to your Ford dealer and come October, they're going to start replacing those tops. So what else is going on in the world of Ford? Same thing that's going in the world of the entire automotive industry, the chip shortage. And Ford is obviously no stranger falling victim to this, not only in their trucks. And, you know, we talked a couple months ago or last month about the F-250 sitting on the side of the road and parked in parking lots and everything because they don't have all the parts to finish production and get them out to sale. Well, the Mach-E, I refuse to call it the Mustang, the Ford Mach-E is no stranger to this either. It is also hit by the same issues with the chip shortage. We have a huge contradiction here though, don't we, Tanya? Because there was another release that just came out from Ford that says. Given the higher than expected volume of pre-order deposits that have been put down for the Ford F-150 Lightning, the electric truck, Ford is actually changing their production plan and saying they're going to be doubling their original production number to keep up with this demand. So it will be interesting to see how they can do that with this global chip shortage. It just isn't a car manufacturing issue. It's a anything that requires a microchip. I think the difference here is the Mach-E is a car that was already in production and is already being sold and is out on the road. But the F-150 Lightning is not in production yet. Correct. They're doing kind of the Tesla thing. They took all those orders in and then for vehicles to be built in the future. Yeah, they're hoping that the chip shortage goes away and then they get the chips they need in time. Right. It'll correct itself. And I'm sure they've got inside information. They've been in communication with the chip producers and they know that there probably is an end in sight. They just can't divulge that information to us. Or they start doing something like Tesla, where Tesla to circumvent this allegedly is building their own chip. In what capacity that it exactly means that they're not having it outsourced, but... Lays or us? Like, what kind of chips are they I don't, I don't, why, I don't know. Why don't they just put the new Apple A12 chip or whatever that comes in the phone? Why can't we use those? Because they're made all in the same place. That's the bigger problem. I mean, once places like Intel and Micron and whatever move their production overseas, they're all at the same, let's say, Foxconn factory, you know, where they're all being produced side by side. So the global chip shortage, you know, also has to do with rare earth metals and all that kind of stuff and people being able to produce them on the line. So even the new Apple chip, that's why there isn't a new iPhone 13 yet. They're still stuck on whatever they have, the 12s and the 11s. You're starting to see a lot of repops and refurbs and things like that. What I find interesting here in this contradiction on the Mach-E versus the Lightning is, is the Mach-E really selling that well, right? We haven't seen sales numbers yet. So if it's not selling well, it makes sense to halt its production to something like the Ford F-150, which we're going to talk about here in a minute, best-selling vehicle in North America. The chip shortage is a great scapegoat 
for yes. low production numbers Correct. and low, low sale numbers. Correct. And we saw that with the Camaro. We saw that with other vehicles where it's like, it doesn't make sense to keep this going. So let's just blame the chip shortage and we can take this thing off the line. Speculation here. I'm not saying that that's what the case is, but Brad, you're a numbers guy on paper. I mean, just the a, most sense. Just a quick look, apparently, without doing too much research, it does look like Mach-E sales are continuing to grow month on month. Where? I don't know because I don't see them on the road. It's like finding hen's teeth. You can count them on the fingers of one The numbers are small, I think, in terms of production quantity. So it's not like they're sold 20,000. They sold, apparently, in June, I think it was like 2,500 barely. Oh, wow. This is a good little tidbit because I have actually seen a couple Mach-E's on the road. I've seen more unique Porsche Taycans than I have Mach-E's. And that's a car that's what, five times the cost of a Mach-E? Probably has five times the amount of chips in it too. You know, I love those marketing numbers. I mean, I see it all the time, even in my line of work where it's like, 100% growth year over year. Yeah, you're right. Last year you sold one and this year you sold two. So there you go. To your point, Tanya, if we don't know what the sales numbers are, yes, the Maki is continuing to grow, but at what rate, right? We're not seeing 200,000 produced. It's not like the Mustang when it was introduced. Let's talk about the Mustang in the Iacocca era where it outsold anything. It's still the fastest selling car like ever during its first production year. So they're not going to see that on the Maki, but to the point of the real sales numbers, the F-150 still holds the crown right now of the best-selling car in North America. That's the U.S. and Canada combined. And based on some numbers that we've recently seen, which we'll talk about here in a minute, but go where the money is. If you're well, and I thought something. we talked about that last month too, is part of the slowdown on some of the production was they were diverting where the microchips were going. So they could be slowing down production because they know if they're seeing those pre-orders being so much higher than what the Mach-E's were and Ford F-150 being the all-time greatest best-selling vehicle in the history of the galaxy in North America, past, present, future, then, I mean, it behooves them to make sure that they can fulfill those orders. Absolutely. And I'm sure you'll probably see things being peeled back or slowing on other vehicles as well. I mean, granted, the big two, we won't call them the big three anymore, the big two have been peeling back their model proliferation for a while, right? I mean, the Fusion's gone. A lot of the passenger vehicles, you know, even on the Chevy side have disappeared. I had the unfortunate experience of driving a brand new Malibu the other day. They should stop making that car. I'm sorry if you own one. Uh, keep the Impala. No, get rid of that trash too. <laughs> you know, since we are talking a little bit about GM, Let's step into that for a moment. The Chevy Bolt, there's been several recalls that have happened around the Chevy Bolt and fires. There's been a third recall, which essentially encompasses that every single Chevy Bolt globally has been recalled. All three of them. I think they sold more than three, surprisingly. I have to look at the numbers. They've sold, I think, like a couple hundred thousand or something. So I don't know that I don't know that the highest numbers were necessarily in the in the US. Nonetheless, this is a I think a billion plus fix for Chevy and the fix is replacing all the batteries in every oh, single car, which is Don't you just turn a bolt over and take out the two double A's and put two more in? <laughs> And the problem is, you know, with these electric cars, we're blaming, oh, there's another piece of crap Chevy, catches fire. Well, problem is Chevy didn't invent the battery. 
Yeah. Chevy didn't make the battery, unlike sometimes Tesla claims to make all that stuff, right? This is why people get on their case because it's like, well, if you're making everything, then it's your fault, right? So LG Chem, South Korean battery manufacturer, the ones that are supplying all the batteries for the Chevy Bolts, along with a bunch of other car manufacturers' batteries, apparently there's an issue in their manufacturing and not one, but multiple of their plants. And so there's some sort of instability. Obviously they can't divulge exactly what their battery chemistry is, but the lithium batteries are already known to be somewhat dangerous. And, you know, there's a lot of cobalt usually that goes into the batteries because it stabilizes the reactions. However, there's issues with, you know, how much cobalt's available and that the cobalt comes from the Congo region and there's human rights issues, et cetera. So a lot of folks have been trying to dial back cobalt mining and, and whatnot. And so if you take the cobalt out, you got to replace it with something else and they're replacing it with nickel. It sounds like maybe that chemistry isn't quite maybe as stable as it needs to be. And it's leading to battery fires possibly. So Chevy is trying to go after LG because they're making the batteries and the batteries are catching fire. We'll see what comes out of that if they can maybe recoup some of their money. But that's a big problem if LG Chem is making all these batteries. They're supposed to be, I believe, supplying the ID, Volkswagen ID batteries for those cars. I'm sure more is going to come out of this if there truly is some sort of manufacturing issue with the Yeah, design. so this becomes like a Takata problem where everybody's getting their airbags from the same place. So yeah, I, I see where you're going with this. And, you know, it's going to be tough. Maybe Chevy can harvest semiconductors from all these bolts and give everybody an Impala instead and they can go about their... I mean, it's, it's, it's a growing pain also because... Yeah. This is new frontier, all these batteries. And, you know, I like the one statement in the article. If it was easy to make a battery, everybody would be doing it. <laughs> I mean, Duracell and Energizer have been doing it forever. Come on now. Yes. Well, I think it's a lot different to power your flashlight <laughs> versus, <laughs> you know, your car to go zero to 60 in an unnecessary 1.2 seconds, right? Uh, very, true. very true. Or lengthen or shrink in, you know, accordion the car, right? Yeah. Lengthen and shorten it. Yeah. We're, at, we're <laughs> asking a lot of batteries today that is not historically how we use them, right? How, how many Duracells would it take to power a bolt? I forget. I went to that museum, the Reno Car Museum, and they had one of the first electric cars on display. I have to go back through my photos because I took a picture of this thing, like, you know, lo- looking like one of those Model T, Tin Lizzie type vehicles. And I forget, it was an electric vehicle and it had like... <laughs> I forget how many, like the car batteries we put in our cars, it had like, I forget how many dozens of these in order to make that thing have like 20 horsepower, I think. Yeah, they're insane. (laughs) And they weighed like 9 million pounds. I was recently talking to somebody about the history of Porsche and you look at the Lawner Porsche, which is like the very first one that Ferdinand Sr. built. And it was an electric vehicle. This is not a new concept to have an electric car, but back then to your point, I mean, they weighed like nine tons and they went three miles an hour and they had the equivalent you know horsepower of two it's terrible uh, but we've been playing with this science experiment for a very long time and and i hate to say and i know i'm going to get chastised for this it's hard to beat petrol it is consistent if nothing else it has been well, consistent for a hundred years i mean we've also had that many more years to, to develop it, it. Yes. Yeah. and do economies of scale and, and make it 
cleaner and et cetera, et cetera. So this is the problem of being in the middle of innovation. Yes. And everybody is going to bitch and moan and point fingers. And it's huge growing pains for research and development to still be going on. But then at the same time, trying to actually put it in the hands of the consumer. Right. It's all fun and games until somebody's battery blows up. All fun and games until your house burns down <laughs> because of your car. Yeah, right. Exactly. One last bit of domestic news. What do we got? So there's always the raging debates that go on. Like, is there a car that's faster than a Tesla in a drag race? You know, blah, blah, blah. Can anything beat it? And there's been tons of videos, right? Ferraris going up against Teslas and Veyrons and Porsches and blah, blah, blah. And I haven't fully kept track of all this, but I believe finally, finally, ladies and gentle listeners, there has been a car that has beaten a Model S Plaid in a rolling drag race. Can I guess? I think it was a, a 2016 Dodge Dart. No, oh, that's brutal. That's savage right there. No, it was an HHR SS. I was about was to say, SS. I was about to say what it also was not. <laughs> <laughs> all those things, HR or any all derivative thereof. <laughs> no front wheel drive cars were harmed in the beating of this Tesla. Neither was it a Malibu or an Impala or any other flaming turd. No, in order to beat a Model S plaid version, all you need is America. Shelby GT500 modified to 1100 horsepower. Yeah! Hell yeah! Yeah! And that the- is not factory. That is not legitimate. And that is not fair. I don't care how you call this. Well, I mean, one could argue the Shelby DT500 is a factory car. However, yes, it did require some modifications that weren't base model in order to achieve a quarter mile mark of 7.91 seconds at 159.63 miles per hour on the first run. Second run, they got to 160.94 miles per hour at 7.66 seconds, beating the Tesla both times. What is the Tesla? By very slim margin. What what was that 2,000 horsepower Challenger we talked about last month that doesn't exist? Didn't we name it like the bat out of hell or something like that? That's a production vehicle that needs to go up against Tesla. Well, why why aren't people racing the Dodge Demon against the Tesla? Or are they and it's losing? Because the Dodge Demon is supposed to run seven, nine. Hold up, hold up. Well, I don't know. I don't know. So that's a this is a rolling drag race. So I don't know what Oh my god, that's bullshit. So there's a little bit of a difference than off the line with all-wheel drive and everything else yeah that's junk and that's what i'm saying pump the brakes because even the demon i've read that to get to that seven second number the oh you gotta do all kinds of shit to it yeah they gotta gotta strip the car down it's only got like one seat in it no carpet it's not really the car you buy off the factory floor to get to that number no, no, it is. They just need to do a couple little things. You can actually buy it without the seat. You pay a dollar for the additional seat and the extra wheels and all that other bullshit. It's a package and your built to order Dodge Demon. I'm waiting I mean, for the bat out of hell. There's it's an coming. advantage of electric over petrol in this it's situation. Hot. I mean, you get one run. But that one runs really fast. Well, because it puts down all the power immediately. Yeah. You don't yeah. have to build up to it. It's yeah. just it just discharge. Here's I mean, the amount of voltage. It's, it's almost not even really a fair comparison to even be doing. Like no, it's like let's take a 747 and drag race it against an F-18 fighter jet. I mean, come on. I mean, it's whatever. <laughs> I mean, we're always gonna do it. Hell yeah. I mean, so let's talk about 
our newest section that isn't really new anymore because we found it and it was lost. It's our historical and lost and found section. Before we hop into this first article, I just want to do my little cars.com search and tell you all what I found. Oh man, (laughs) here we go. You can buy a brand new with three miles on the odometer, 1991 Honda Accord EX in white. white. Oh, man. With a 2.2 liter four-cylinder, 16-valve single overhead cam. How much is it going for? I missed that. $33,000. No! (laughs) What? It's a you, Sam Linder Honda in California. You're shitting me. Nope. Sam Linder out of his mind Honda in California. <laughs> yeah. That is insane. 33 grand for a 30-year-old car. <laughs> but but and not but, even a good 30-year-old car. At least it was something somebody wanted, not a freaking Accord EX. But it's it's white. <laughs> well, did they really make any other exciting color? <laughs> it's, it's it's not silver. <laughs> yeah. To quote Hazmat, that white makes it rare. It's rare. <laughs> well, considering there was a lot of, you're right, there were a lot of those brown, gold, champagne ones. Ugh, barf. I'm throwing up in the back of my throat just thinking about it. The, the next car after that is a 2000 Dodge Ram 2500 with 10 miles on the odometer. Its exterior color is metallic, that's all it says, and it's $55,555. I just want to point out that metallic, in my mind, immediately conjured up the word rust because rust <laughs> is metallic. It is a it's, dodge. Called, it's called patina. That's patina. <laughs> my brand new patina truck. I oh, mean, man. for 55 grand, just hold out for the F-150 Lightning, people. <laughs> yeah, right? Nobody wants a, a Dodge from 2000. Please. Unless it's a Cummins, maybe. Well, no, it's 55555 because Facebook Marketplace wouldn't let them put in the correct price. The real price is 1234 like all yes. Facebook Marketplace ads. <laughs> oh, terrible. Speaking but of which, in- the Passat is still for sale. Facebook people, somebody buy this damn thing. I need it to go away. <laughs> it is lost. Somebody find it. <laughs> It's going to find its way to a wrecker. No, it's a good running car. Yeah, speaking of Volkswagens, there was a brand new 2001 GTI for sale for auction. I believe it was during the UK. It was in in the UK. Yeah, it's a silver 25th anniversary edition, which they did not bring the 25th anniversary edition over to the US. Came over a year later as the 337, but it's got the BBS wheels, the special interior, you know, all that good stuff. It sold a brand new car for 38,000 pounds, 38,250. So it translates to 52,494. I remember there being the 25th anniversary GTI in this country because it came in the three colors. It came in black, it came in that bumblebee yellow, and it came in that candy blue. And they said ah. it was the 25th anniversary, or were they just saying that and it was really ah. 337? They were sold here as the 20 AE, the 20th that's right. anniversary oh, cars. Oh, that's right. Because you have to remember, the GTI came in Europe right. earlier than it did here. Here it came out in 1983. That's the date we set at. So 20 years from there, 2003, 2004. You're right, you're right, you're right. Right. Yeah, 52 grand for a Mark IV VW, especially a 150 horse motor. Yeah, no thank you. But I found something interesting this month. You know, you've heard of the, the Flying Spur, which is a Bentley. It's a 
Volkswagen product. We'll call it what it is. It's, it's an A8 somewhere underneath of there. A gentleman decided that having a, what is considered a rare Bentley to begin with, wasn't rare enough. He wanted to turn it into a ute. That's right, folks. He contracted with a builder to his specifications to develop a Bentley Flying Spur pickup truck. And it um, looks like every other Mark IV Volkswagen pickup truck conversion that you'd imagine. Who gave Daniel access to a flying spur? <laughs> In all honesty, the build quality is really good. I love the teak wood finish and all that. But again, it conjures up my quintessential question of why? Why didn't they just buy a Chevy SSR? Uh, I don't know. That's exactly what it looks like. like. It's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. Granted, Bentley doesn't make a ute. They don't make a pickup. They make the Bentiaga, whatever that is, Toreg. They should have done this to a Bentiaga. That would have looked also terrible. I mean, I just don't get this. I mean, better. This goes back to what Tanya says all the time. Rich people doing rich people things because nobody stupid, in their right stupid mind Stupid people do this. doing stupid people things. The best part of the article was this guy spent quarter million dollars in the car alone, if not more. The custom coach builder said, we will not disclose how much he spent to do this conversion. So I'm assuming he probably doubled down on this vehicle. So here's a half million dollar Bentley Ute. Have at it, folks. So for a little bit of levity, there is a link that you can see a visual map representation of the best-selling cars in each country around the world. In the world. We already talked about Ford F-150 is the greatest best-selling car this side of the galaxy, this side of the Milky Way since the Milky Way came about. Yes, in North America. So the United States, it's the F-150, it's the F-Series in Canada. Ford takes the cake in North America, more or less. And then you have like countries like Italy, where... <laughs> Is anybody surprised that the Fiat Panta is the number one selling vehicle in the country? No. I mean, <laughs> you step foot out of the airport and there's like 50 of them in front of you. I love that Kosovo is the Dacia Sandero. You know, Germany is the Volkswagen Golf. I'm not really too shocked by that one either. But I think there are some interesting yes. uh, thing ones in there. Like, actually, I didn't know that the Irish were into the Toyota Corolla, but cool for them. Another, I think, fun fact is, which is the best-selling car in the most number of countries? I was going to bring that up. It's the Hilux beats everything. When you look at it, it's in the worst places on the planet. <laughs> like, Australia's the outback, and Africa, South America, everywhere where the roads suck, you find a Hilux. Like, 100%. It's everywhere. And then if it isn't a Hilux, it was like Toyota Land Cruiser, and like other stuff just like it i'm like yes so f-150 might be king on our shores but around the world the highlights because we don't get in (laughs) in 16 countries the toyota hilux is the number one vehicle and you know what if it was available here i'd buy one too because i think they're freaking awesome it is it's called the toyota tacoma it's just called the toyota pickup in north america no it's not as good the hilux is better and it comes in a diesel but i did see recently there are folks importing right hand drive hiluxes from overseas and there was one at summit point at summer bash i thought it was super cool it took me completely by surprise because i'm like what is this navy blue thing that looks sort of like an 80s forerunner and then i hear it it's diesel and the guy's on the wrong side of the car and i went that's the car from top gear it's super cool and I got to talk to him for just a minute and you know they're now coming in gray market like a lot of other cars from overseas and i think that's super neat i don't know why toyota just doesn't sell the hilux here in hilux trim 
the way we all have seen it on television, the way we would want to. To your point, I think another car that got my attention and it was surprising to see in places that I didn't expect was the Renault Clio kind of popping up here and there. And I also thought it was interesting that more Skodas, which are a derivative of VAG, they're just rebadged, are showing up more in Europe than the Volkswagens themselves. Kind of interesting. Do we want to address that there are six countries where the A Dacia of some sort is the number one selling car? (laughs) I want to address that the Tesla, any Tesla at all, has made this list. The Model 3 in the Netherlands and Norway. The I mean, Norwegians I, are pretty electric. Yeah, but why a Tesla? Who knew they because, were so Because up? Tesla, oh, basically, that who who else was there? So yeah, there's other electric cars out there. I also want to point out with the Dacia. Did we know that there are five different Dacia models? There's Stop the Sandero, my brain. The Sandero, and then the Sandero adjacent. And so there's the Sandero, which takes the Logan. two countries. There's the Duster, the Logan, the Docker. The- the oh, Plymouth Logan Duster? twice, so there's four different ones. Three more than I knew about. That's three more than there should be. <laughs> I love how the Saudi Arabia loves the Hyundai accent. Awesome Kazakhstan buys Camrys. I think that's like the funniest thing on this map, hands down. Like craziness. But anyway, I think when you guys dive into this, it'll be in our show notes. It's actually very interesting to see the highest uh, selling numbers of cars around the world. It's pretty shocking and very revealing too. So pretty Surprise, cool. surprise. The Russian leader is a lot of... <laughs> I mean, how arrogant are the Russians and the Americans that their number one selling vehicle is their trash? Well, I mean, they're not allowed to import anything. And the Fiat Panda. And, and well, I mean, Italy and Germany and, and yeah. uh, Spain. I, and uh, it makes so, sense, yeah. You know, and, and, yeah so. Well, if it's a Seat in Spain, it's just a Volkswagen. I mean, let's be serious. Sure. Right? So Volkswagen really is not the car of the people. Toyota is the car of the people because more people across the globe buy Toyota. Speaking of around the world, I came across a video recently, a a husband and wife from the Netherlands of all places like we were talking about with their very electric Ford with their Teslas. This gentleman still runs around in a 1915 Model T. As a sort of retirement, you know, adventure with his wife, he decided to traverse the world north, south in his Model T. So he started in Edom, you know, where the cheese is from in the Netherlands, and he made their first trip all the way down to South Africa. It was 22,000 kilometers, and they had not a single problem with the vehicle. Their their first leg took 180 days. They set off on their second leg of the trip in the United States, uh, doing the United States and Canada and basically a little bit of Latin America, 28 thousand kilometers in the mile t suffered two failures one of which was a flat tire and the other one was a malfunctioning alternator on their third leg they did south america and then they were going to do their fourth leg which was in australia new zealand and that part of the world again traversing north to south kind of keeping with the theme unfortunately when they returned home they were involved in a car accident in the netherlands and the model t was destroyed it was completely Mm. totaled So there's actually still a campaign going on because this was right at the front end of COVID and some other things and whatnot to try to get these folks back into Model T and finish their world tour. You know, it's not that easy to just go get one anymore if you don't 
already have one to buy one from somebody else. And it's not the same car. Again, going back to that philosophy lesson about Theseus's ship, you start and rebuild. Is it really the same car? And I, and I believe they were still working to do that. There was a big push from Ford to help these people get back on the road. And as I dug into it a little bit more, because this is an older video that I had seen for the first time, you know, keeping with our lost and found idea here, I didn't see any follow-up as to whether or not they were able to complete this particular journey. But I thought it was really, really cool. It's about a four or five minute video and telling their story and all that. And if you haven't seen it before, it's definitely worth spending the amount of time to check it out. Where now, do you find an alternator for a 1915 Model T? You know, that is a question I just can't answer. But you know what I can answer? Top 20 highest selling cars at auction. Mm-hmm. So another another article that came across my desk, it just kind of falls in line with this whole theme that we always talk about on Lost and Found about ridiculous auctions and whatnot. So the low end of this scale is in the $17, $18 million range. The upper end is on the $50 million range. No surprise here, 11 of 20, over 50% of the vehicles on this top 20 highest grossing auction cars of all time are Ferraris. A handful of others are also Italian. They're Alfa Romeos. Got a couple. You have the rest of the lineup inside of there, outside of Italians, are mostly British. McLarens, Jaguars, Aston Martins, etc. So an interesting lineup. If you haven't seen them, check them out. With the way prices have been going, I'm surprised to not see a Porsche on this list. Uh, yeah, the singers aren't there yet, so it's only a matter of time. <laughs> they're they're only at two million. You gotta you gotta cross that seventeen million dollars ceiling. Oh my god! Before I my ass, I wipe my ass with two million dollars. <laughs> You know, Tanya mentioned plaid earlier. You know how we talked about with Donovan a couple episodes back about where this plaid comes from, ludicrous mode and all these kinds of things. It comes from the movie Spaceballs, right? But plaid is not an uncommon thing in the automotive world. And it actually was started at Volkswagen. Yes, there's a article on the Volkswagen newsroom that goes into this in more detail. But essentially, there was a female designer in Germany back in the day. Back in the 60s, she joined as a young lady. She had formerly been a painter and chocolatier candy box designer. So she had an artistic background, knew how to put colors together, things like that. They hired her in their fabrics and colors department in Wolfsburg. Gunhild Liljequist. Apologize. I'm sure that's not the best accented pronunciation, but close enough. And yes, she is basically the founder of the plaid interior that we have come to know as standard GTI today. And also, as a side note, the golf ball shift knob was also her doing as well. It's kind of a sidebar. So she had a lot of influences essentially from being in and around Great Britain because Great Britain is known for the tartan and all that, which is just, you know, the piece of cloth that's plaid. And so she got inspired from that. And even though I think I was talking about how she actually was very much like a black and white color palette person, like she did enjoy like just having that contrast, but then still wanted to marry some color to break that up. And so she got inspired by the plaid that she saw in Great Britain and incorporated that into the interior design of the golf and then clearly a smash hit and carried on to this day. That's not all. She also discovered what we now know as metallic paint on our vehicles. She discovered the iridescent pearl color she applied to a car service using transparent foil. So anybody with a metallic car in their driveway with the the metallic flake and all that, 
you can say thank you to uh, Gunhild. To, to Gunhild. Frau Gunhild. Let's get it right, right? <laughs> so I'm not saying all roads lead back to Volkswagen. Interesting things are invented sometimes by accident and come from the weirdest of places. We've seen plaid interiors pop up in all sorts of cars, but that's kind of really the inception mainstream that it became like this cult thing to have these certain patterns. And there is a specific GTI, red, black, gray, and white pattern that we've all come accustomed to, which is kind of cool. And you're seeing that resurface even today in the most recent Mark 8 models of the GTI, it hasn't gone away. They've tried variations on the theme over the years, but we've always gone back to that original pattern. And it's just, it looks really cool. It, it still holds up to this day. So Brad, I found something really interesting this month. Did you know? Oh, yeah. Do I know what this is? I think I have found the oldest new vehicle. I think I have broken your record. In speaking with a guest that will be on a future episode of Break Fix, he informed us that he has a new, never-been-sold 1950s Porsche diesel tractor available with certificate of authenticity from the America Porsche Diesel Corporation. And it's located in Virginia. More on that later this season when we interview Sal Finelli, president and owner operator of Porsche Diesel USA. It's a very interesting episode in the fact that it is car adjacent and brings to light a side of, you know, motorsports icon Porsche that many people are not familiar with. So be on the lookout for that episode later this season as we go over Porsche diesel tractors with Mountain Man Dan as my co-host on that particular episode. But I also found something else. I have to thank Mountain Man Dan for this one as well. It is no. a 1978 no. classic film. No thanks to be given. <laughs> it stars Annie Potts, Janine from Ghostbusters, and Mark Hamill, Luke Skywalker from Star Wars, in a movie called Corvette Summer. And although Dan wanted to do this viewing party and review of the movie, I don't think it needs to be done. I think all you need to do is watch this four minute trailer and that's four minutes too much. Hot garbage. What got me though is where the hell did they film this? It's a right-hand drive Corvette. Yes. Toward the end, I was like, wait a second, pause. (laughs) Why is he in the passenger seat driving? It took me a minute to realize it was Mark Hamill at first, too. Like, Annie Potts, right away, I got it. The the plot line is implausible. It starts off like a 70s porn. I mean, it's terrible. Terrible. So so I just had to look up, because I'm very familiar with Hamill's career. I mean, everybody is. I mean, he Star Wars, basically, and then a lot of voice acting. The Joker. And Annie, yes, Miss Potts. People know her from Ghostbusters. People should know her from Designing Women. People should know her from several other shows. When I was watching this, I was like, how did this not derail her career? I had to look this up. This was her fourth credit in IMDb. So this is her fourth on This could have been a career-ending movie for her. We could have had somebody else in the Ghostbusters movie because of this Uh, hot trash. I mean, who else would get flack to the Sugar Baker sisters other than Annie Potts? Come on now. I don't know. Dr. Vankman, Dr. Vankman, you got a call. God, I love those movies. That is must-see TV. Dumpster fire. Yeah, must-see it go into the garbage can. I that mean, I guess, I guess Mark Hamill's lucky that his career wasn't sidelined. Yeah, he's lucky he didn't, he, he's lucky he got to be Luke Skywalker again after this. I, I, would, I gotta look it up and see where did this fall in his... We're gonna call up our friends at Take Two and everything I learned from movies. We do need to do a group viewing of this, like Mystery Science 3000 style on this thing because it is atrocious 
check out the YouTube clip where we show the teaser for this. I mean, it is all the glitter and glam that you would expect from any 1978 movie. It is time for us to move on to random EVs and concepts. And famous name in the motorsports world, Dennis Palatov, has come up with a new radical battery idea for cars. He's famous for designing some very sleek and aerodynamic concepts and some very lightweight cars, kind of on the nose of the ideology of Lotus, add lightness, then power, those types of things. And now he's saying, you know, for the EV world, same idea, highly streamlined vehicles, super light, all this kind of thing. Granted, he's designing around, you know, tube frame, two-seater, almost roadster type cars. But what he's also saying is, look, folks, you're running around doing 40 miles a day in a car that has 400 miles of range. And then you're doing all these, you know, recharging exercises. And he does specifically call out Tesla a couple of times in the article. And he says, why not put in batteries that only provide you with what you need? This way we could distribute the load of the batteries necessary for all of these EVs. We've talked about multiple times, where are we gonna get all the precious metals? If they're pulling back on cobalt, where are we gonna get the cobalt necessary to build these batteries? So to his point, I get it. If you're only driving a certain distance, smaller batteries makes more sense. However, if you wanna go anywhere further than your normal commute, this doesn't work. I'm kind of torn on what he's proposing. It doesn't not make sense, but on the same token, Meh, whatever. I thought at first, you know, with the clickbait headline, he was going to introduce some new revolutionary battery technology. Just wasn't the case. The, the similar concept to the, the naysayers that say you don't need a 700 horsepower Dodge Hellcat. Yes. You just need a car that can get you from point A to point B going the speed limit. My response to that is, fuck you. Yeah, I do. <laughs> because I can. Because I because want to. America. America. <laughs> well, the answer is you're absolutely right. However, I still want one. What does he drive? He drives a Hilux, doesn't he? He drives a car that he designed himself. They see a Sendero, Logan, or Docker. Yeah. How many resources did he burn up in research and development for his own car? But on the brighter side of concepts, like we talked about, names are important. There's a name that's coming back. What if I told you Integra? Oh, sorry. Can you repeat the question? No, I'm just kidding. I don't hate the Integra that much. It was fine. Integra slash RSX, I guess. I think that's probably exciting. It should be good news for us because it's what should be a hot hatch entry. Lift back. Well, it's always a lift back. Lift back, hot hatch, whatever. A, a compact car that's not a freaking saloon. Acura, Honda, whatever. The Civic is going away. What else do they have? What was it? 91 Accord EX? Yep. Available today. 33 grand. Same price as the Civic Type R. <laughs> so, I mean, this is a good thing to see a sporty little compact. My guess is it'll be an SAV just like the Eclipse. You know. That would be terrible. And the worst part is there's no pictures of it. There's nothing yeah. other than the shot of the headlight, which it looks like an NSX headlight, to be honest with you, with an embossed Integra font there. But to your point about the Civic going away, is it really going away or is it just switching places? Is it changing outfits, right? Is it the Civic now becoming the Integra? Immediately when I read that, I was like, what's the over under on this just being a Type R with different badges on it? What's the over and under being the size of an Accord or, good point, Brad, being a freaking compact crossover thing? Could end up being an Acura version of the HRV or whatever that thing is called. The smaller one. Barf. Oh my God. It's their version of the, it's the Mustang Mach-E. It's the 
Integra, except it's a freaking SUV. It's just, it's an Integra on stilts. Yeah, it's interesting. Look forward to seeing what comes of it. Not going to get too excited yet till they have some more photos leaked. We might as well hold our expectations low so that we'll be pleasantly surprised. I agree with that statement. That's what I'm going to go with. That's what I'm going to lead with. And we will follow up on this car when we know more about it. Tanya, as we know, has an affinity for small hatchbacks and small vehicles in general. Here's something new from Mini. It's a small, small world. <laughs> no, <I'm kidding>. Oh God! <laughs> yes, apparently, and I do not know. I apologize. Who this famous fashion designer out of Britain is? Not very However, famous, after all. Well, I mean, not in, over here on this side of the pond, but likely over there. But fashion guru Paul Smith has reimagined, redesigned a Mini Cooper SE to be simple and sustainable. So what does that mean exactly? It's environmentally friendly. It's simplicity in its beauty, if you will. Oh my God. I kind of like the, where he went with it because essentially he gutted this thing. It's ready for the track. <laughs> 100%. I agree with that. And, and, and some of the things he did, especially those door cards and whatnot, I'm like, I like that. I, I'm going to copy that for my race car because I, I like the way that turned out. I read the troll posts at the bottom. We'll call I them reviews. I I, the, we'll call them reviews. I'll be nice. I mean, most people are like, this is heinous. This is disgusting. Why would you ever do this? This is a publicity stunt, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, yeah, I see it. Nobody's ever going to buy a car that's basically a gutted race car. No, and I don't think this is, I'm not sure this is supposed to be out for production. I feel like this is just kind of a one-off, like, oh, I did this. Oh, we can be sustainable. We can be more green with our cars. But no, absolutely. I was trying to like read through and be like, all right, so you strip like everything out. Did you leave the sound deadening? Because no one is going to drive one of these on the road when you have none of the sound deadening in the carpet because people already don't like sporty suspension because it's too, yeah. So this would be heinous to drive on. Yeah, everything is like what's left of the door cards is made out of cork and the dashboard is like made out of cork and also partially clear. Essentially, he stripped out anything that he deemed was not necessary. So not really adding value or function. Stripped that out of the car. Like I'm not opposed to the steering wheel kind of harkening back to the day when the steering wheel was a steering wheel. Like he stripped out all the buttons and all that stuff. I'm not on board that we wrapped it in... (laughs) tennis racket <laughs> handle wrap that's a, a little bit uh, we could have spent a little bit more money there i think that gets oh. sticky and when it gets hot too so gross i just had to unwrap two of my tennis rackets because the wrap disintegrated yes you touched it and it just powder black dust everywhere and so gross you thought the gross. soft touch stuff in the 2000s was bad that's gonna be nasty no yeah so i mean it would have been better off just like Whatever the base material the steering wheel is, just polish it nicely, sand it, and just like leave an it old that way. wood steering wheel yes, from exactly, back in the day. Exactly. You know? Anyway, so this is this fashion designer's bespoke, simplistic, bare bones car. The outside is unpainted. So going back to the car earlier, where it's bare metal, I guess this is I would hope, would hope at least clear coated or something, but no paint on it. So the you get silver. <laughs> Gunmetal gray. You can have any color you want as long as it's metallic. It's ready to be painted, folks. Oh, God. The inside is painted blue, though. It makes no sense. They didn't build a car from the ground up. He took an existing car and stripped it of everything. So he obviously started with a blue blue car. I, I have issues with this. Okay. First of all, every fashion designer car I've ever seen is always to use your quote, hot garbage, right? So I don't care who it comes from, whatever. I mean, this guy could be 
Gucci or Bulgari. I don't care, right? It doesn't matter. Ralph Lauren, whatever. My That's point usually is, the other extreme. Of yeah, right. Body. Of ridiculous. Yeah, of ridiculous. But what I'm getting at here is, first of all, it's made of sustainable materials. The car is still out of freaking metal. Oh, so I, I don't get it. It's not like he rebuilt the car out of recycled cardboard, like you mentioned no. on last month's episode. Second of all, the chemical process to strip that car down to bare metal wasn't necessarily eco-friendly. Third of all, the stuff he stripped out of the car, I don't think that was the biggest detriment to the planet, the stuff that was in there. Because here's the deal, all that cork for the longest time, weren't they even talking about they had to make synthetic corks for wine bottles because it's an endangered species of tree and you, you can't do all this kind of stuff. So I'm like, I don't really buy that. And the other thing was you take away my racer brain. It's the first car I looked at and said, holy crap, you just made a Tesla look high class because it is kind of janky inside if you don't appreciate it from a motorsport perspective. So the, I think the outside actually looks nice. We those wheels paint. are gross. Those wheels well, are disgusting. I'm not looking at the wheels because you can change those easily, but whatever minor, like the trim things that he changed, it doesn't look bad. I think exterior wise, put a different set of wheels on it and paint the damn thing. It looks good. The interior no. Would I want that as my car? No. But I think I would take your arguments and take come at a different perspective. I don't think sustainably he's trying to make a 100% sustainable car. I think you could take it from the perspective of that's not attainable. However, there are many things you could do to make a car more sustainable. It doesn't need all these things. I think there's a problem with how gutted the interior is because realistically, how does this pass safety? So I think that's an issue. And I forgot what my third point was. <laughs> Nonetheless, I think this is just an artistic piece and we just leave it at that. <laughs> it's more of a get people thinking that there may be more simplistic things you can do that are a little more sustainable. But I don't think at the end of the day, you're like, well, what's sustainable? Making the whole damn thing out of wood? No, that's not sustainable either. Because now we're that talking about That guy Vietnam did. I mean, come on now. Well, he did it, but now, but now the argument is, well, you're chopping down trees, right? So, what's so sustainable? I go, I go, I go back. Of course. <laughs> yeah, well, not even that, really. But I go back and forth on that because some of the things I thought were really cool, again, from a racer perspective, he replaced the glass with a new kind of Lexan, right? I forget what he called it. Uh, perplex. Just, perplex, yeah. Which I thought was really cool, super lightweight. But plastic made from petroleum, glass is made from sand. Yeah. Well, I don't know how they made the glass, but for instance, he replaced the floor mats that he did put back in were apparently from recycled plastic. Okay. That's a sustainable thing to do. We're burning through plastic. Like it's nobody's business, whether it's plastic bottles, food packaging, et cetera, et cetera. So if they're able to take that or even tires and recycle the rubber and turn them into floor mats, I mean, that's a positive thing. So there are aspects of, hey, we can be more sustainable and friendly in our design. We don't have to start from scratch every time with petroleum products to make every component in the vehicle. The one thing that was missing from this as we kind of finalize this thought stood out to me as I read the whole article. Not one time did they mention how much weight he saved out of the car. I mean, I would imagine it has to be a lot. I'd be curious, but they wouldn't, they didn't weigh it. So it's kind of like, I, I don't know what the point of it, of any of it was other than like the guy did it. I'm surprised we generated this much conversation on it, but good talk. It's exactly <laughs> moving on. We'd be remiss if we didn't move on. It's time to talk about Tesla. Oh God, here we go. <laughs>
<laughs> so there's three points to hit here. And I think it ties back to some things we were already talking about earlier around supply chain issues, microchip delays, things of that nature. So the Tesla semi-truck, was it just me or did that thing drop off the face of the earth? Because that, that thing was coming like I thought five years ago already. It was hot and heavy and orders were made and we were going to make so many of them in crickets which is, let me offend some people, kind of par for the Tesla course, right? Because every time like we're announcing something, it's it's always like six years later that it actually comes to fruition, whatever. (laughs) But you know, that boy who cried wolf gets a little old after a while. So the Tesla truck is once again delayed and it's very unclear as to what the delay is, but it sounds like it is essentially supply chain issues and refocusing kind of what we were talking about earlier with Ford is they're refocusing their energy and the supplies that they do have the semi and the cyber truck as they both are delayed. They, they do kind of talk a little bit about, we believe we remain on track to build our first model Y vehicles in Berlin and Austin in 2021. Well, 2021 is almost over folks. The pace of the respective production ramps will be influenced by the successful introduction of many new product and manufacturing technologies, ongoing supply chain related challenges and regional permitting to better focus on these factories. And due to the limited availability of battery cells and global supply chain challenges, we have shifted the launch of the semi-truck program to 2022. We are also making progress on the industrialization of Cybertruck, which is currently planned for Austin production subsequent to Model Y. I mean, it goes hand in hand. The Cybertruck is also delayed. The Cybertruck was supposed to come out this year was supposed to be in production. That's not happening. That one's vague too. I would assume the whole we're shifting to Model Y is part of it. There's also question as to, are they having problems with the design <laughs> of the or, truck? <laughs> or, or could it be they got to figure out how to resell those carbon credits that they sold everybody that got returned? Woo! Or B, is it because they're under investigation for Tesla's hitting emergency vehicles? Let's unpack that one. Or before we unpack that, C, they're seeing how well the F-150 is already putting pre-sales in. And they're like, hmm, maybe this triangle blob thing polygon from Nintendo 64 days isn't what people want as a pickup truck. (laughs) That's specifically why I put a $100 deposit in can we get a doy from brad i mean beauty's in the eye of the beholder so i mean those people are all blind you like the look of that thing i guess to each their own i mean i'm not a pickup truck fan but give me the f-150 all day every day you can haul so much mulch if you're telling me i have to have a pickup truck i would like a traditional looking pickup truck so give me the f-150 give me a rivian give me whatever as long as it looks square body Chevy, Dan will get you one tomorrow. It's hot. <laughs> I do not want one. So they are also under investigation right now because of the number of times their Teslas have struck emergency vehicles while operating in the autonomous mode, which they're still claiming is fully autonomous. And then also Elon Musk recently tweeted in the last day or so how their autonomous beta testing version, whatever the heck they're on, 9.2 or something. Eh, might not be that great. <laughs> he like, literally said something to that effect. In my opinion, it's not so good. Oh, okay. Yes, that's what the rest of us know because A, it is not fully autonomous. There's no such thing yet. There's no vehicle that you can lay down in the back seat and get to where you're going without dying. Okay. I mean, you might get there once, but I wouldn't put my faith in that. 
more than once but at it becomes rate, a hearse at that point you go straight to the funeral home <laughs> yeah converts into a casket and you're done i guess it's not like there's been like hundreds and hundreds of these accidents but i mean there's been like almost like a dozen or so over the last five years which is more than enough to make people go why is it always happening when there's an emergency vehicle on the side of the road with their lights flashing particularly in, in night or low light conditions what is wrong with this technology that's not seeing what it should be seeing right and i mean i think it's tesla themselves need to investigate this it's pretty serious often when there's an emergency vehicle on the side of the road there is a human being on the side of the road outside of said emergency vehicle it does seem to be a reoccurring theme whether it's police cars ambulances etc it's like the camera system on the tesla target fixates on those flashing lights it must freak out the camera in such a way that it causes the thing to become basically like a homing beacon or like a like a targeted missile. I mean, it's just, it's it, nuts. Something's happening. It's blinding something. There, I have read, he's very adamant in it. Tesla's are only going to be using the camera technology as opposed to other people's autonomous vehicles are a combination of the camera, radar, LIDAR, all these things. Or, or so my understanding is the, he's kind of insistent that it's going to be 100% the cameras. It's like, okay, maybe one day, but it doesn't seem like the camera technologies quite as good as the human eye that's paying attention plenty of people at the hands of the wheel that have struck emergency vehicles also so i still think the biological alternative you know the organics in your head are still far superior to any camera and any computer well and that's part of the debate too is just a computer they're not sophisticated enough to have that reason component and to understand and to get the other clues that can warn you about something not on a computer that small i mean yeah sure if you got big blue from IBM in the back seat. Uh, well, yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, if you've got three stories of massive mainframe, mainframe yeah. computers, I'm sure it can be better than the human eye, but yeah, no. At any rate, Brad's a huge fan of Toyota, as we learned earlier, but we heard something yeah. interesting. And this is something we don't hear very often, but BMW has recalled its Supra model. Oh, wait, I didn't get that right. BMW has recalled its Toyota Supra model for a braking issue. Basically, it causes them to not have brake assist, which means it's very difficult to stop the car once it's in motion. So if you have a BMW Supra, make sure you get down to your BMW dealer and get this BMW Supra issue taken care of. Is that the the Zupra? Zupra with a Z? (laughs) Yes, your BMW Zupra. So I have to say, I actually rode in one of these recently. During Summer Bash weekend, I I got to right seat in a new Supra. I went in with a little bit of prejudice going, uh, it's just a Z4. It's just a Z4. It's not going to be that good. I will be honest with you. It is really, really good. Surprisingly good. Incredibly fast. Very agile. Unlike any other new car I've been in. Granted, there are cars that are better. I will take a 2016, 2017 ACR any day of the week. 911 GT3 is a better car. The Corvette C7, I think is a better car overall. But for what it is, as this cooperative effort between two brands that I never saw coming together to work on something like this, it's really really good. It's the best BMW Toyota has ever built. You mean it's the best Toyota BMW has ever built? Uh, it depends on which side of the street you live on. <laughs> now, a question. Did you have an issue with the wind buffeting? Because that was a huge complaint from owners with the windows down. It was almost undrivable because of the wind buffeting issue. You know, to be honest, no. 
I didn't notice it at all because of the track, you are forced to run with the windows down. Granted, I had my helmet on, but it was not this over-exaggerated, blowing over a Coke bottle type of scenario as everybody described it. I actually thought much like other cars with a similar shape, like a 944 or the Audi TT, there was hardly any airflow coming into the vehicle. It was kind of hot in there. Now, granted, it's got enough horsepower. You could probably run around the track with the air condition on and not even feel it. But I never noticed any of the wind buffeting or anything like that. And the brakes seemed to work just fine all four days that this car was on track. (laughs) No issues there. But I would say the only downside to the Supra is that it doesn't come with a manual transmission. I think that would be my only gripe, especially when you look at the new BRZ, when you look at the new Z400 coming from Nissan, they're being offered with manuals. It'd be really cool if the Supra came in a manual because I don't think it would take anything away from it, right? Everybody says, oh, but the double clutch is so much faster, blah, blah, blah. Granted, if you're Randy Popes or Tom Christensen or one of those guys running around the Nürburgring doing a power lap, for, for us normal pedestrians on a regular track day, I still think the manual is a lot more fun and you have a lot more control. You can kind of decide when you want it to shift and all that kind of thing. Just to be an old timer, you know, call me a boomer. I think it would be really cool if the Super came in a stick just like all the other, you know, two-door sports cars that are coming out right now. And if any of our listeners have a new Supra, please let me know and reach out because I would love to see if I fit in one. Again, if you haven't driven one, I highly recommend it. And for the money, I'd say it's a good compromise compared to some of the other stuff that's out there. Now, is it going to be as good price-wise as the the 400Z? No. If the 400Z comes in where they're saying it's going to come in, that's going to be the hot ticket next year when it's officially slated to come out. But moving on. Rich people doing rich people things. You didn't say that, right? Rich people doing rich people things. Doing rich people things. I mean, I think we can just read this headline and then move on. Now there's a licensed three-quarter size Ferrari 250 Testarossa for fancy kids. How much does this thing sell for? That's what we want to know. It's up there with the Bugatti Baby 2. It's up there with that Aston Martin James Bond thing. What are we talking about price-wise? I'm just curious. We are talking about for a whopping 37 miles an hour. It is so expensive. They don't list the price in the article. It's a Ferrari. Of course. You only pay for the best. Well, since we're talking about ways to blow your money, two things came across my desk this month. I found some really cool logoed merch, officially licensed products at paddockcollectionstore.com. So if you're looking for stuff from F1 teams, Brumos Porsche, IMSA related stuff, pretty much different facets of the motorsport world, check out paddockcollectionstore.com for some actually great sales, reasonably priced, officially licensed merchandise. And on top of that, I saw an ad on Instagram for something called The Block zone, which is the coolest custom Lego sets I have ever seen. So there's a group in the UK that puts together and sells sports cars, race cars, etc. for you to buy. You know, they're not Lego sets. They are the block zone sets, although they are comprised of Legos. You can order these reasonably priced. What's funny is if you want to search for certain brands like Porsche or Lamborghini or Ferrari, you have to use kind of creative ways to look them up like the old bull 
is what they call the Countach, and the prancing horse is Ferrari. But you learn their nomenclature pretty quickly, and there's some very cool sets out there. I highly recommend the Porsche 917 kit. Came in right around 150 pounds or so, which you know can be kind of expensive, but it's a 2000 piece set and it looks really, really good. So check that out. We'll post a link for it in the show notes and maybe think about that as a Christmas gift for your petrol head this winter and stay tuned for our holiday shopping guide later this year when we'll talk more about that. August was also the month for car week, traditionally earlier in the year, but the Monterey historics were back, you know, first time since COVID. They had some keeping it weird cars in the collections out there at Monterey. And uh, one of our members, Ryan Compton, has a huge assortment of pictures that he took while he was out there in person. But there were a few cars of note. One especially I targeted for Tanya. The Bugatti. What's it called? The Bugatti Bebe. The Bebe. Is that the baby zero? (laughs) The original? Is it the original baby? The Bebe? I think it is. So there's some really interesting cars on this list of uh, seven oddballs that were at the Monterey Historics this year. I think the one that really got my attention was the BMW, which is the only BMW I've seen without the signature kidney grill. It looks like, what's it, it called? It's like a Studebaker. Is what Japanese like. car. The Cosmo. It looks like the Cosmo. Yeah. I like the Glockenspiel. Yeah, right. I mean, I mean the Glockler. So before we wrap up our, we would be remiss with our traditional Florida man stories. I wanted to touch on a couple quick things that you can check out today on your local streaming services. Most of us know that the Grand Tour released their newest episode, Lockdown, during the month of August. And so I got a chance to review it. I don't know if you guys did or if our listeners did. I would be curious to see your thoughts. I walked away from it going, it was better than the last one, but it's the same old formula. I'm okay with that. I enjoy seeing Clarkson, Hammond, and May doing what they do best. I found it rather delightful, the cars that they chose and some of the way the scenes played out, but it was kind of more of the same. I watched it. I was bored about halfway through because I was like, oh, it's another Top Gear episode. I didn't like the car choices or the premise or whatever. It just it wasn't for me, I guess. The Buick Rivera was pretty cool. I, that I think really was like pretty slick. Car. I feel bad that he kind of chopped that thing up. I think he ruined a perfectly good car. I would have cared less if they had done that to the Lincoln or the Cadillac. Although lowering the Cadillac was kind of funny. I mean, what a turd. There's been some other mockumentaries that have come out. There's a new John DeLorean one that has come out. The Lady in the Dale is finally available on Hulu. You have to pay for it on, you know, Hulu's premium service. And then, you know, we were teased with Rust Valley Restorers, their latest season, but I can't find it anywhere. It's supposed to be on Amazon Prime. I don't know if that's like Prime Canada and eventually make it to the U.S. syndication there or whatever. Car Masters season three released earlier this month. And I did a review on it, which is available on our website. You can read all about it. I don't know if you guys watch that. It really, to me, feels like season two, part two, because it picks up exactly where Car Masters season two ended, but... No spoilers, I'm watching it right now. It is kind of off the rails. <laughs> I posted on Garage Ride a couple of pictures from the series for folks that hadn't seen it yet. I wanted to get their gut reaction. The response was, is that what they're building now? If you haven't seen Car Masters season three, I recommend it. You know, I sat down and watched it with my wife. She enjoys the show because she enjoys the cast of characters. She had a lot of really 
insightful feedback, which I incorporated into the article. Not all of it, because some of it was a little more colorful than I was willing to put in the article. Would you like to know my pet peeve? Sure. And I'd have to go back and look at the other two seasons, but I think there was a change and I'm terrible with their names. I don't remember what any of their names are other than caveman. The female. The Constance. Only female, Constance, there you go. The only female that's on the show. And I don't remember exactly season one, season two, but I feel like season three is different in that this chick has got freaking manicured fake nails and she's working on a car and her hands are always constantly pristine looking and I'm like please step off this is so fake which is terrible because I actually think her credentials that they explained from like season one or whatever is she actually knows what the hell she's doing and actually knows how to work on engines and things like that so it's like why do we have to freaking make her fashion model and I guess the pretty eye candy to generate you know more viewership from the male audience or you know whatever audience she knows what she's doing with cars let her be herself maybe she works on her cars and somehow doesn't get grease on her hands I need to learn her trick then I've never seen anybody on the show wear a pair of gloves so you know whatever now granted they are dealing with a lot of new parts and new parts are not dirty either way there's some grease involved there's some grime involved even I've worked in new parts and you still get I've managed to get yeah but I I break a nail when I don't even have nails so I can't even imagine working on cars and things like that with fake nails on. I agree. And I've gone back and forth on this. And Jess and I talked about it as well. Honestly thought in season three, despite the, the Lee press on nails that she's got going on, that she actually had more credibility this season because she was given more screen time. Yeah. She speaks educatedly when she speaks about the stuff that she's working on. When they partnered her with Caveman and with Tony to work on the two special builds they did, the fire bike and the school bus, I was like, wow i mean she's on point in the previous two seasons i'm with you i felt like constance was a bunch of eye candy they were just there to, to, to spike the ratings to keep people interested in the show their work stands for itself they don't need the eye candy so to your right. point if she's going to get dirty let her get dirty let her do what she's going to do i go back and forth on this all the time you know what i mean but i do like the cast unlike some shows like west coast custom and even as much as i like rust valley restorers i can't get into a show where people are constantly at each other's throats it takes a lot to put up with that but you, this show they seem to gel they seem to get along which is good because oh, so it, it's a very good show like don't yes. let that comment deter anyone from watching it it's, it's very entertaining they're wildly talented people all four of them and what they do i tried watching the first episode of the first season and I, I couldn't get behind the whole trade up to we're gonna do this to trade to this guy to get this car to ultimately trade up to this guy to get this car they, they lost me with the trade it, it actually works unlike other shows it keeps it so unique Mark Tell has done a really good job of not copying the counting cars formula. And that was very apparent in this season specifically where Sean, the guy that does the wheeling and dealing was trying to bring in these high profile customers and these high profile builds where they're just doing like parts hanging and stuff like that. And I could tell his body language and his, the way he dug his heels in, he was like, I don't want to be that show. And I kind of knew where he was going with that because if you watch counting cars It's the same thing over and over again. And a lot of people love to copy that formula and it's worked. It's been good for Danny Coker and his team, whatnot, but this show is unique in the sense that they are doing this whole bargaining and bartering and upgrading and trading and whatnot. And that's what keeps it interesting. Even though I sometimes take issue with the way Sean does his business deals, even Jess was like, 
I got to take a shower after this because it's kind of slimy. It just, it works. Like their team works, the whole premise works. And I, I do enjoy the show. And I'm, I'm very serious when I say that I want to see it come back. And it is on my top five restoration shows. I mean, amongst Goblin Works, Rust Valley Restorers, these guys and others, I do want to see them come back and I want to see them succeed. I would like to see him branch out of the gothic Batman stuff that he's been doing and do more like what was in season one with the Futura and even the Exner from season two, like those kinds of builds where it's really over the top, but authentic resonates more with me as a viewer than some of this kind of crazy brushed aluminum, you know, gothic skeletons and spider webs. I know spider webs are his thing. He even brings it up in the show. He's like, I take flack for it all the time. You know, hey, let's see what season four brings us, right? And let's hope that they survived the COVID because that's where season three ends is right on the beginning of all the lockdowns and shutdowns. I did visit their website. They are still around. They're selling merch. There's pictures of some other builds on there where they've been using some C5s and C6s instead of the classic C4, which I gripe about in this particular season. So again, let's see what happens in season four. In order to be a well-informed podcast host, I'm going to go through and watch the show so I can have an informed opinion next time. Probably right as when I watch Drive to Survive. So you (laughs) You watch Drive to Survive and get up to date before the next drive through and I'll watch Car Masters. I have watched both. I am currently watching season three of the Car Masters. And you can tell me if my review is wrong. Just leave a comment on the website. What did you think of Drive to Survive? I thought it was very good. I enjoyed it. I think it's gotten better since the first season. It has. Um, But they added Ferrari too, because Ferrari wasn't in the first season. Yeah, the first season was like, I don't even remember now, but it was very focused on only like two or three teams. And then Mm. every season it's expanded. And the last season, actually, you got to touch on like everybody got the opportunity to have a, a voice or, you know, be covered. So... Yeah, and then the drama that they create for each of the episodes is actually really well put together. And some of it's stuff that I didn't even realize was happening throughout the season. It's not overly like soap opera-ish or dramatic either. So it's not like you just feel like, oh, this is stupid reality TV. And what I've actually heard from some folks, it's doing a positive thing for American viewers to Formula One who never were ever interested i've heard people that really they're like i watch formula one now because i watch drive to survive like this is so cool like i'm into formula one now so that's a good thing and we're going to talk about i think later in the motorsports thing how there's possibly another american team that could be coming to formula one spoiler alert we'll talk about that in a little bit so i mean if the show can bring more people into this sport that is pretty big everywhere else in the world then i think i mean it's doing something what we would consider positive it's bringing more people into the motorsports world the only downside is if you got new viewers into Formula One and they see the same people winning all the time and the same BS and the same drama and all the things we talked about, I hate to say Hamilton's got to go. But that's fine because Hamilton, the reality is he's waning. How many more years is he really going to keep going? So I don't think had Drive to Survive came out seven years ago and now everyone got into it and they're like, oh, this dude's still winning again. It's a different story, but... Don't get me wrong. I have no complaints against Lewis Hamilton, extremely talented driver. I just want to see him behind the wheel of something else. I don't want to see him behind the wheel of another formula car. That would be a great wish. And we all know that's the epic challenge. Put him behind, you know, what was the Force India car or something, which is actually his old car anyway. But, you know, I'd love to see him in a prototype. Do like what Alonzo did. Go to IndyCar. Go do like Juan Pablo Montoya. Go to NASCAR. Get, you know, get into a prototype at Le Mans, whatever. I mean, just do something different. 
to your point about the Force India car or the Racing Point car being Lewis Hamilton's old car, there's actually an entire episode in Drive to Survive about that very topic. I don't know that I need 45 minutes of my life used up to explain you, that. You do. You really do. It's very interesting. <laughs> uh-huh. Next week on Mujeres Engañares, <laughs> telenovela on Telemundo, <laughs> let's move on. How about Ooh. Florida Man stories? So we got a couple and we're going to kind of do maybe a reverse order this time. I'm going to start super serious and then we're going to end it on a high note. Oh, man. You mean a low note? Oh, yeah, a high note. <laughs> <laughs> the first one is a, is really not funny at all. It's very quite serious. And I hope the gentleman recovers. But I, I want to use it as a public service announcement for people who think that their neighborhood is the Indianapolis 500 straight away. Because I would like to inform you that it is not, nor is anyone's neighborhood. So please drive accordingly. So there's a gentleman in Detroit who apparently brought up with the county, the city, whatever, that many, many people are speeding down the neighborhood street. Please put in speed bumps. Please put in speed bumps. And I'm not a fan of speed bumps, okay, by any stretch of the means, but he felt so strongly that he kept petitioning for this. They kept rejecting him. No, who knows? I mean, like Detroit can afford to put a speed bump in, right? I'm surprised the road is so smooth that someone can be speeding down it, but (laughs) that aside. So unfortunately, and this was like caught on, I guess, surveillance video, the guy that had been petitioning for so long that people were speeding down his road was going to turn into his driveway, make a left-hand turn. And people started victim blaming immediately that, oh, his turn signal wasn't on. Well, okay, it's a neighborhood road. As he's turning in, he gets T-boned by a guy in a pickup truck, basically doing twice whatever the speed limit in his neighborhood. I mean, it shoots him down two houses, the guy, brain damage, all this other stuff. I mean, he got T-boned by a freaking pickup truck and he was driving what looks to be possibly a 1991 Accord EX. No, no lie. <laughs> Which where I know where he can get a brand new one. Versus like a modern day pickup truck. So you know he took one hell of a hit at whatever the speed was to get T-boned. So this poor man is probably fighting to survive right now. So please don't be an ass and drive respectively. There's no need to speed through the neighborhood. In a neighborhood, you should always assume that there's pets and kids and, and whatnot. Well, the Just- best part is he's turning left into his driveway and he gets T-boned the truck going to the left. Why are you even driving that way? Yeah, that doesn't make sense. That being said, the same is true of the paddock. We sometimes forget, even at the racetrack, that paddock speed is as fast as you'd like to get run over by a car. I mean, I say that all the time during group meetings and and briefings and stuff like that. So it's something to just keep in mind. There's no reason to be doing 60 mile an hour in a 20 mile an hour zone. But moving on to more idiots, because we've kind of heard these stories already. I don't know what this new hotness is, but I'm going to let the title speak to itself and then move on. Some assholes in Camaros stop traffic to do burnouts on a New Jersey turnpike. Wait, wait, that's the actual title of the article? That's the title of the article. Man, Nailed it. Jalopnik. Jalopnik is amazing. <laughs> Nailed it on the head. Jalopnik, well done. You captured it. I don't need to read the rest of the article. <laughs> so also, public service announcement, don't be these people. Completely unnecessary. Go to your local skid pad at your local racetrack and do your donuts. For the gram! For the gram! For the moron. But For TikTok. TikTok these days. For TikTok. Now, to end it on a high note, have you watched the link of this YouTube video? I have seen this. Mad props to that guy. (laughs) In his pole start, power wheels, whatever it was, peeling out of the local diner. He peeled out of that parking lot onto the road. That thing is fast. 
I think the best part of that video is the lady. And she's like, no, he didn't. And he's just like burns out, like takes off. I was like, that's awesome. My favorite part is the Jolly Roger flag behind them. Yeah, it's <laughs> street legal, right? Or yes. Definitely Florida's Waffle House. It's down south. All right, well, it's time for us to go behind the wall, the pit wall, and talk about motorsports news. We talked a little bit already about the F1 season, Drive to Survive, etc. And there is a constant revolving door of schedule changes this year, just like last year for Formula One. So I'm going to kind of summarize two of them. Miami is on the docket for May of 2022. So next year, the Formula One Grand Prix of America is in Florida. So very curious to see how that turns out. And rumors indicate that Indianapolis may return as a replacement for the canceled Japanese Grand Prix. Now, we ran six to seven American Grand Prix at Indianapolis, especially the one where, you know, three teams ran and there were only six cars on track because they were boycotting the tires and that whole situation. You know, there was a lot of interesting years at India. I went to a bunch of them myself, along with some of our other members in GTM. But it's cool to see Indy coming back on the calendar, even if it is just as a substitute teacher. But I think there's even bigger news that Tanya alluded to coming to Formula One in the next couple of years. Mike? Michael Andretti has announced that he's trying to throw his hat into the Formula One ring and bring a U.S. team into the mix. I'm glad he didn't say he was coming back to Formula One, because if anybody (laughs) grew up watching Michael Andretti in Formula One, it was not so good. (laughs) The Andretti name carries a lot of weight. His dad, Mario, Formula One champion, right? He's actually a triple crown winner, Le Mans, Indianapolis, and F1. It's a long legacy there. The Andretti family, you know, kind of kicking ass and taking names. I would really like to see this happen because Andretti making a play for Formula One will be the first fully American team, American cars, American-owned, American drivers in Formula One, I think almost ever. So that'll be a first. I mean, granted, there's Haas as an American-owned team, but employs, you know, foreign drivers. So this would be really, really cool to see this, this play out. Meanwhile, in the world of IMSA, BMW is making a play, not just in LMDH, but in GT3. The BMW M4 is set to race in the Super GT Series next year. On top of that, a Portland teen is set to become the youngest driver in Le Mans. Ever. He will be 15 years old when he takes the green flag at Le Mans in 2022. Wrap your head around that. Not sure how that plays out, how that works, but cool to see a young American driver on such a big stage, you know, the biggest stage, the Le Mans, 24 hours. We now have yet another bid. Lamborghini is not alone in making their bid this month to go to the 2023 running of Le Mans, which Lamborghini running Le Mans, isn't that really Audi? I wanted to mention that earlier, but hey, you know, it's their way in the door. (laughs) But Cadillac has also confirmed that they are making a bid to go to Le Mans too. So it's going to be an action-packed 100th anniversary of Le Mans. I can't wait to see it in person. It's going to be absolutely amazing. But what we need to do is take a moment and talk about this year's 89th running of Le Mans, the 98th anniversary of the first Le Mans here in 2021. Brad, what'd you think? I know you watched the race. We didn't do our viewing party this year like we always do. I stayed up as long as I could, and I think I got the most sleep of any Le Mans race I've ever watched. I actually did not watch the race. I, out of the 24 hours, I was able to watch maybe about a half hour. What? what? But I've got other pressing life 
events going on right now. So I did not get to. There's nothing more pressing than Lamont's blasphemer. Tell that to my eight month pregnant wife. (laughs) (laughs) I did see the new hypercar class, Mm -hmm. uh, or at least I guess the, the early makings of the new hypercar class. Oh, you mean the, the LMP2 cars with slightly boosted motors? Yeah, I thought some of them actually looked really cool, though. I, I will say this. The Glickenhaas nice. car, which was the big to-do, the announcers in the middle of the night, because I was up late watching it. And like I said, I, I did watch most of it. They mentioned that the Glickenhaas team, which is, you know, Scudiera, Glickenhaas, this whole nonsense name that they came up with, is supposedly the prototype for the Peugeot 9X8 that we talked about last month. Kind of cool to see it. So they're using it as a test mule. This weird hypercar class that they have, you know, it's supposed to be a mixture of like DPI and like all the LMP and all this kind of thing. Right now, the cars that were running in there outside of the Glickenhaas car were basically boosted LMP2 cars. I was really excited for Team Alpine, Alpine, depending on, you know, which accent you use. The Matmut car, basically under the auspices of, hey, it's a Renault <laughs> and it's a Renault power plant, everything on Nissan, whatever, you know, whatever effort they were, you know, calling it under. But that Alpine, it had a chance of beating Toyota if the circumstances for Toyota went sideways on them, which is the same thing we say every year. If it falls apart on Toyota, they're going to lose and an LMP2 car is going to win, whatever. But that Alpine or Alpine did a really great job in terms of its qualifying lap times. It was very much on pace with the Toyota hybrid. So I was very excited to see that. That means there is potential next year, depending on how things play out in this new LMDH class and hypercar class, what the competition is going to be like. What I haven't heard yet though, is Toyota's bid for 2023. So I'm wondering if they're going to bow out gracefully, maybe next year or even unspoken this year, like maybe this was it. And next year as Porsche and other folks may, are got to be testing. I mean, they're not going to come to the big stage without testing something. I'm really curious to see how 22 plays out, but as just like last year's Le Mans kind of took me by surprise. Cause I forgot it was in August, but also it was really unexciting and Corvette suffered a bunch of problems. The Porsches were still privateer cars. Ferrari pretty much swept the GT class. Good for them. The same folks that are doing the AF Corsa cars are also building the Ferrari LMDH cars that are going to come out in 2023. So you're going to see more of a presence from Corsa as well. I found it oddly disconcerting that I was really excited about the LMP2 class more than anything else. So that speaks volumes as to this race. And I'm sure there's people who are going to be out there, oh my God, it was so amazing. It was boring. All right. I'm going to just flat out say it. it was boring. And I can't wait for 2023 when we actually get some brands back on the table competing for a proper championship and not a bunch of let's stick it in there so that Toyota isn't running by themselves. Well, two things. One, Toyota's next entry is going to be the BMW Supra. And two, the Glickenhaus is the car that I was looking at. I was like, damn, that car looks really good. It's a really awesome looking race car. It reminds me of the old days of like Group C IMSA Can-Am with like the 962s. It kind of has that look to it. It's like an old school prototype car, which again, I'm like Mercedes, hello, Sauber, let's do something here. You know, I'd also like to see Mazda come back. I mean, granted their whole Skyactiv diesel, whatever the heck that DPI thing was, they were running in IMSA, wasn't so great. I mean, there's an opportunity for Acura here, Honda, McLaren, whatever. I mean, there's a bunch of other names that could still come to the table 
in the next two years. So I'm really, again, excited for 2023, but 2021, a little bit of a letdown. I'm just glad that Le Mans wasn't canceled. That's pretty much it. I would say the grandstands weren't full. There were definitely spectators there. And as typical of any Le Mans race, it was more exciting at night, which forces you to stay up. The announcers shut up and you can actually watch the race. It's more exciting at night than it is during the daytime hours. And do we want to talk on the changes in the schedule and when the next races are? I think the IMSA Petit Le Mans has changed and the VIR race has changed as well. I think they're both within like a couple, like a like a month of each other. I think one's in October, one's in November. Because Le Mans has slid from typical Father's Day weekend to this August date right now, which hopefully it'll slide back to the middle of summer, the VIR race and the Petit Le Mans have slid way into the fall. Again, I'm going to be watching those. I will say that the WEC schedule has been severely disrupted because of Le Mans moving. So the final two WEC races are going to be held at Bahrain, a six and eight hour race in September and October, I think it was, I looked. And from what I understand, none of those folks really like running at Bahrain. Uh, They just don't (laughs) like the track. They don't like the layout. So to have two races less than a month apart, it's kind of a want-want for the WC season if you're into watching that particular series, which is available on like motorsport.tv and you know places like that. But I think we need to move on to FIM, the motorcycle racing series. What do we got, Tanya? Talked about him before. Likely goat Valentino Rossi has finally announced that he will retire from motorcycle racing at the end of this season. That is a shame. It's probably inevitable. I mean, he's getting up on years. Motorcycle racing is definitely its own beast. You need to be a young man, I think. You got to have those reaction times and and whatnot. And, you know, the fact that he hasn't really been winning in the last couple of years does not detract in how skilled he is because he is still wildly skilled. But when you're, I forget how old he is, 40s already, like, and you're competing against people that aren't even 20, it's just not the same. But I mean, kudos for him. Congratulations. He's still a young man. There's, you know, speculation, rumor. What's he going to go on to next? Could we see him in DTM? We already know that he usually competes in a couple races a year in WRC. So could he do more there? I don't think this is probably the last we'll hear of him. So I've heard he's heading to IMSA. Whoa. I'm super excited about that. So Valentino Rossi might be on the schedule for IMSA and maybe Valentino will be at the 2023 Le Mans. What's up? So I'm really excited about that. Don't know which team he's signing with, but I'm going to be keeping tabs on this. I'm sure you will too. Big name like that, moving from motorcycles into cars, not necessarily a bad thing. Again, I mentioned this about Lewis Hamilton. Try something different. And again, like you said, behind the wheel of a prototype or even a GT car, he's still got a lot of years ahead of him because look at somebody like Jan Magnussen. I mean, I feel like he's the elder statesman of IMSA and Le Mans right now. The guy is still blindingly fast. Feel bad for the wreck that he was involved in, you know, the, in the middle of the night, which basically took him out of the running in the LMP2 cars. But, you know, it is what it is. You know, we'll look to next year and see Jan Magnussen yet again out there on the WEC stage. So what else for Valentino? Is there a little bit more news? I think we have congratulations in order because he is also going to be a father-to-be. So oh. he and his uh, girlfriend are going to be expecting a little girl, apparently. 
So congratulations to them. So maybe another Rossi and FIM in the future, this time a female. Think about that. That would be something very exciting. Well, that's it for our motorsport news. Now we need to jump into our quick little recap of our local news here at GTM HQ. And I want to remind everybody and thank everybody again that came out to our charity event at the end of July, beginning of August, uh, our Summer Bash 7 in conjunction with Auto Interest, Summit Point, American Cancer Society. We raised over $90. That's $9,200 on behalf of the American Cancer Society. That was our biggest, baddest, best fundraising event yet. Can't thank everybody enough that showed up and participated from the people that came out and volunteered, that worked the event, that were part of the car show, our members that were there for our anniversary reunion. Fantastic event. It was a lot of fun. It was a long four days after it was said and done. And right behind that, we went to Carolina Motorsports Park and met our friend at Just Track It face-to-face. I will say this about Carolina Motorsport Park. If you haven't driven it yet, go drive it. It is a heck of a lot of fun. I wasn't sure what to think of it when I was looking at, you know, track maps and videos, another one of those types of tracks that doesn't do it justice. I unfortunately learned the track as quickly as I could in the rain, but that quickly translated to some awesome dry laps about midday on the first day and throughout the entire weekend. So I can't recommend going there enough if you haven't tried it. If it's on your list of tracks to get out to and you've been kind of like, ah, I'm not sure if I want to make the drive, it's definitely worth checking out. And check it out with our friends at Just Track It. They run a fantastic event, very affordable, well run, very well organized, right on point. And a big shout out and a thank you to Nabil and his team for inviting us down and letting us experience CMP together. Our trackside report brought to you by hpdejunkie.com. What's coming in the next couple of months? There are still a ton of events. I mean, Hooked on Driving's got a, an event this week at Summit Point, Maine. You've got Chin all over the place. You've got PCA. I mean, there are events still booked day in and day out now through Audi's event in November at VIR. So I don't want to list them all. I can just recommend going to hpdjunkie.com and checking it out. But a couple of things that fall in line with our trackside report, join us, the GTM team for our end of year bash, what we refer to as the animal house. Yes, we're going yet again to Watkins Glen. That's October 22nd through 24th. That's three days on track with Hooked on Driving at the famous, maybe infamous, infamous Watkins Glen full circuit, Lake Seneca, New York. So if you haven't checked it out before, it's breathtaking. It's beautiful. It's enormous. It's fast. It's fun. If Watkins Glen is a bucket list track, get it done. There's no excuses. It's absolutely amazing. And it will become one of your favorites by far. We talked last year about Oak Ridge and new tracks coming to the Tennessee Valley, the Smoky Mountains and things like that. Turns out that we know didn't happen. It got shut down, but there's a new track coming to Missouri. It's called the Ozarks International Raceway. And it was slated to open in 2021. To Tanya's point about other things that are supposed to happen in 2021, it's already come and gone. So what we're going to do is we're going to pay attention to hpdjunkie.com and see when Ozark gets added to the roster and who's going there first. It's within reach, even from the DMV folks to get out there. It's within that 12 to 14 hour window that you can try a new track and the track map, the aerial view looks 
pretty good. It looks kind of exciting. I'm interested to check it out. I can only imagine that out in the mountains, it's going to have some elevation changes. For next year, as we kind of pre-plan our schedule, we're going to be looking again to Dave and the HPD Junkie schedule to figure out when there's going to be events at places like Club Motorsport, Palmer Motorsports Park, National Corvette, Gingerman, and maybe Road America. So these are some of the things we're talking about for next year. So if you're a hardcore, what we call cannonballer and want to do some long distance caravanning and go experience a new track together or go to a track you've been to before with a great group of people, let us know, get involved in our cannonball runs. Those are the types of tracks we're looking at. So a little sneak peek, usually we reveal this in the fall, but those are the things we're thinking about. Drop us a note, let us know which one you're interested in, and we'll try to coordinate with you to get it out there. And also remember to check out hbdjunkie.com for who's going to be there, who's going to be hosting events, and when you can get on track sooner than later. And in case you missed out, check out the other podcast episodes that aired earlier this month. We talk Suspension 101 with Jake and James from PowerFlex USA, an engineering company devoted to improving your street and track handling experience. We chatted with fellow petrol head Mark Schenk as we discussed which 90s icon he should consider in a What Should I Buy episode. We talked STEM and esports with David L. Middleton of My Racing and got a firsthand account of his incredible journey of becoming an American race engineer at the Nürburgring. And lastly, don't miss the full-length pit stop episode with Porsche enthusiast Mark Porto talking about his cars, his family's racing history, and his father being featured in the new book, The Beltsville Shell, You Are What You Drive. Thank you to everyone that came on the show this month, and please look forward to more great episodes in season two. Unlike other months, we got some new Patreons. And so big shout outs to our Southern States member, Dave Scherf, who came and joined us at Carolina Motorsports Park earlier this month. Thank you for signing up. Thank you for supporting the club. Thank you for being a member for many, many years, you know, coming on board through our virtual racing league. Stellar guy, him and his brother have been longtime members of GTM. So we can't thank you enough for supporting us through Patreon. And also to Mountain Region member, Brian Bubba Young, who you might remember from the big man little car episode (laughs) mad props to both of you guys for signing up and pledging your support to gtm and being longtime members and helping us through patreon brad any other shout outs this month uh we have one shout out Uh, we talked about him earlier in this episode he was over at monterey historics car week uh, this uh past week ryan compton happy birthday for his birthday in august you know brad birthdays are special but how about some anniversaries in the club I want to give a big shout out to folks like Rob Lors, who's been on Break Fix podcast several times, celebrating seven years with us this month here in August. Fellow instructor Brett Sonderby celebrating four years with GTM. Andrew Mulreen, Lauren Thompson, celebrating a year. And we picked up a couple new members this month as well. So shout outs to folks like Greg Haman, Hunter Wilson, and the Beauchamps, Dale and Neil, and so on down the line. So shout out to all of you, because you know what? As we grow and as we continue to keep members on board, have our loyal fans, our loyal listeners, et cetera, you know, as we've said many times and we realize we can't do this without you, folks. We want to send you that shout out. We want to send you that thank you. So again, thank you for being part of the GTM community, being part of the show, just being part of everything we do and continuing to perpetuate motorsports enthusiasm. 
And remember, folks, everything we talked about in this episode and more is available on our website, gtmotorsports.org. Every one of our podcast episodes comes with a follow-on article summarizing our show notes, everything we talked about, pictures, videos, a lot of things that you can't see when you're just listening to us. It helps describe and support what we've been talking about. So please check that out. Leave your comments, leave feedback. We appreciate it. And if you have other ideas for shows, episodes, or maybe you know somebody in the motorsport or car community, give us a call, send us a text, shoot us an email, let us know. We want to get them on here. We want to share their story. And on that note, I think we made it through yet another drive through episode. We've got one more thank you though. Oh, we do? Yeah. We have to thank our leader, Tanya. <laughs> oh, that's right. Our executive producer. Oh, please. Thank you. <laughs> Without Tanya, we could not do this show, period. Without me, you'd still do the show. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. All good praise goes to her. All bad goes right into the circular repository. That's all I'm going to (laughs) say. And on that note, we'll see you next month. Bye. Well, here we are in the drive-thru line. Me and her in front of us cars in back of us all just waiting to order there's some idiot in a volvo with his brights on behind me i lean out the window and scream hey what you trying to do blind me my wife says maybe we should call if you like what you've heard and want to learn more about gtm be sure to check us out on www.gtmotorsports.org you can also find us on instagram at grand touring motorsports also, if you want to get involved or have suggestions for future shows, you can call or text us at 202-630-1770 or send us an email at crewchief at gtmotorsports.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hey, everybody. Crew Chief Eric here. We really hope you enjoyed this episode of Break Fix, and we wanted to remind you that GTM remains a no annual fees organization, and our goal is to continue to bring you quality episodes like this one at no charge. As a loyal listener, please consider subscribing to our Patreon for bonus and behind-the-scenes content, extra goodies, and GTM swag. For as little as $2.50 a month, you can keep our developers, writers, editors, casters, and other volunteers fed on their strict diet of Fig Newtons, Gummy Bears, and Monster. Consider signing up for Patreon today at www.patreon.com forward slash GT Motorsports. And remember... Without fans, supporters, and members like you, none of this would be possible.